True Crime Kent contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences or anybody to be honest. Listener discretion is advised. Back here live at the Waterfront Village with my friend, the zombie, Jonathan. You're looking good, Jonathan. Just got an awesome face paint job. What do you think? I like turtles. All right, you're a great zombie. Good times here at the Waterfront Village. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 33, but ep- Episode 1 of that Season 2. It's it's, worse, it's the first episode of Season 2, ep- but Episode 30. So, hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 33 of True Crime Kent, a show that reveals that the worst monsters are non-existent because the Webster's Dictionary of Monster literally says an imaginary creature that is typically large, ugly, and frightening. Imaginary. Wait. Wait, what the fuck is the point in having seasons in a podcast that doesn't even have a running story? We're doing it. Don't get me wrong. Op said that I, we needed to start season two. I just don't understand why. The, the, there's not a running story, so there's no point in having seasons. Whoa, 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 whoa. Turn that garbage off. Hey, hit me with some of that backwoods shit. This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Welcome to True Crime Kent. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kent, and with me, as always, is a man that knows way more about coins than he does the female anatomy. Here is the operator. President Lincoln was the first president on a coin. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening and thanks for telling a friend. This week we are feeling very underwhelmed to be drinking Liquid Death from Austria, where they are brewing bland water for us in a can that looks like it was made by the same guys that wear Affliction shirts. It tastes like water, looks like water, but that's because it's just water. Mediocre water in an expensive designer, non-biodegradable can that will certainly lay around the environment for 140 years. That's how long it takes an aluminum can to decompose up. You can get a can of this expensive, mediocre gimmick with a metallic taste at any gas station near you. Anyways, as always, we would like to thank all the members of our Patreon who contributed to our hardcore water fund op, because that's what this show is all about. 
drinking hardcore water and talking about true crime. Yeah, double single A, single T E double R U N, water run. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a water. Let's talk about some true crime. And we are back. And I've got a little surprise for the listeners. This voice, longtime TCK fans are going to recognize. He was in the first, I don't know, what, 15, 20 episodes? Yeah. Today's co-host is is actually not the operator, despite that little humorous opening there. Mm. We've got Jack Luna here today. Hey, how's everybody doing out there in podcast land? And how you doing there, Ken? You know, I, I shit, I showered, I drank coffee. I'm feeling good. Yeah. I'm feeling good. Looking good. Looking good. I just been drinking beer all day and smoking cigarettes, so I feel like shit. So you're feeling normal? Yep, normal. I'm right at the right temperature for something like this. I would like to see an experiment where you just eat like kale, yeah, and chicken and shrimp and vegetables and drink water, nothing but water. You quit smoking, all the other stuff, heroin, and yeah. you don't do any of that stuff for like a year and see how you feel. You want me? To- you also don't sleep. No, you want me to start having sex with men too? There, Kent. <laughs> I would say you you do lead, lead a very masculine lifestyle. Yeah. Everybody says that about you. They do. They do. Actually, most people, when they meet me, they're like, I think that guy's gay. That's what I thought, and that was my favorite part. Yeah. About <laughs> yeah, I'm very feminine, you know? Legs <laughs> crossed, always touching. Completely not homophobic, although I'm seeming like that right off the hop here, but I was, I'm on your podcast, so I'm, I'm coming in a little hot. I'm going to pull it back a little bit. Well, it's kind of fitting that you're on this episode because originally Jack for our Patreon listeners mm-hmm. this episode the topic today was originally I had slated it to be a brutal oh yeah episode right yes on. and I felt like after doing the research I felt like it was just like a hair under being brutal enough to be a brutal episode oh man I'm, but I'm excited too much to be a TCK episode you just relaxed me because I forgot that we do that brutal podcast every once in a while there on Patreon. So I'm going to get into brutal mode for this. Is that okay? That's fine because this is more brutal than it is anything. Anybody wondering what the what the heck and fuck is a brutal? What is a brutal episode? That's the yeah, that's the uh, podcast that we do on Patreon where we cover cases that are just the worst of the worst. Brutal. Yes, and that was Jack doing the the entrance music there poorly, and it. <laughs> is a podcast where we focus on the worst of the worst, and it's also very distasteful and unprofessional the way we, the way that we do it. Yeah, it's so brutal. I mean, we've decided we're, we're only doing, I think we're going to try to do it quarterly now. We didn't get any negative feedback on it, but, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty brutal, man. Not going to be able to run for any uh, political seats <laughs> no. in the future either of us. Speaking of seats, man, is this the operator's chair that I'm sitting in? It is. Why it is. does it have a food processor and a hole in it underneath? It's because he's so full of shit that he just dumps bricks and he needs to churn it up before it goes down the drain. Or what's going on here? He keeps a. If you look underneath you, there's a five gallon bucket, and he just like sometimes when we're recording, he just does poops. <laughs> it's, he lives in it. it's like a lazy. <laughs> he, the operator. He lives in that little recording booth. <laughs> Every time I talk to that guy, he's in this booth. Yeah, you know, and and yeah. uh, now I know how he's able to sit here so long because he's it's a toilet. Well, you know how we always are like, hey, he he works all the time because anytime we talk to the operator on Marco, he's like, 
in that booth. So I'm always thinking like, God damn, he's always editing or researching or writing an episode. And then come to find out just yesterday we were marcoing. Turns out he has Red Dead Redemption in there. <laughs> that's and that's the... what he's doing. <laughs> he's just getting away from his family. You know how he got away from this today? And uh, I just want to tell the audience this. You know, I'm happy to be here. I'll be here anytime. I'd like to be here. You know, I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll come in the future if everybody likes me being here. I don't know. But uh, he told us, remember, I got to drive my parents to the airport to go into Ireland. And yeah, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> that was his excuse. My parents have to go to Ireland. Ireland. And like like as if the the destination, like how far away the place is, has anything to do with the amount of time. Like you're going to the airport and back, right? Yeah, it's the same whether they're going to Ireland or Arkansas. It's <laughs> You're still going to the airport. They could be going to Malaysia. He also found out that his parents had to go to Ireland like 15 minutes before he's supposed to record, and that's why you're here. Yeah. That devious bastard. I love him, though. Love him, man. No, we'll, we'll, we'll make the best of it. I know you worked hard on this episode. I'm looking forward to it, man. Who are we doing? We're doing a child killer, a person who kills children, or a child who kills people? Maybe the first child serial killer. Mm-hmm. By the way, the operator will be back. This is the new thing. Uh, it's just for this one episode, so don't get your panties in a bunch if you're a if you're a operator groupie or an anti or, or whatever Jack Luna guy, yeah, yeah, no. or an anti Jack, Lu- yeah, girl, whatever, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, wait a minute, there was like a weird intro too that you should probably talk about, right? What happened there? Well, that was when we still thought that's that was we recorded that when we still thought the operator didn't have to <laughs> Go take to his parents to Ireland. <laughs> 15 minutes, he found out, by the way, before it was time to record. They had to go to Ireland. They had to ru- run to Ireland real quick. He might not be able to make it. But back to the uh, episode today. We're doing Jesse Harding Pomeroy, Jack. Okay. All right. Uh, no, sorry. I was talking about the intro like where you like made fun of all those other podcasts like before we started talking there, right? Is that Yeah. S- like... What was that all about? Are you trying to start fights, or are are you fans of those podcasts, or what's happening? Be honest, I don't ever really even listen to them. <laughs> you just listen to their intros? <laughs> yeah. I thought it would be funny to... I've always loved parody stuff. Like scary movie. <laughs> yeah. You know? Remember Scary Movie when it... Sure. There's no hate involved in any of that, but uh, I just thought it would be funny to parody some more popular podcasts. And there's another one still down the chute in this very episode, so <laughs> hopefully... We don't lose listeners. Yeah, it was pretty good. You might gain some. All right, man. I'm sitting. But I'm yeah, waiting. I don't have any personal issues with any of the people that I'm making fun of today, uh, except for Aaron Mankey. <laughs> and True Crime Garage and, and Sword and Scale. And Sword and Scale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did a good job on those, man. That was pretty tight. I, I tried to capture the, uh, the aroma. Oh, no, no. Nailed it. I, I do want to throw a trigger warning in this, Jack. <laughs> Animals do get hurt in this episode. I want to throw that in there because yeah. it seems that every single time we do an episode where an animal is harmed, we get negative reviews or somebody's butt hurt and they whine and bitch. Mm-hmm. And I'm just the information cannon here, right? Don't, don't kill the messenger. Yeah. Fortunately, though, we do get to cushion the death of these animals with tons and tons of children being tortured and murdered. Oh, man. No, that's a real palate cleanser for sure. So those of you who don't like to hear about the animals getting harmed, we'll get to hear about more children being tortured and murdered than animals. So you can 
chill out. Calm down. It'll take your mind off of it. Just hang in there. (laughs) While you're crying through the animal, the animal's pain. Don't worry. There's a child getting ready to be brutally assaulted, tortured, and murdered right on the horizon. Yeah. So yeah. calm down. It'll be okay. I want to say an episode where I talked about stomping a cat to death because I saw it on the side of the road get hit by a I mean, it truck. Was dying it was dying already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it was dying. It was it was inside out. And it had been hit by a car, right? Yeah, I assume so. It looked like it had been hit by a lawnmower. Or did it get hit by a jack loon? <laughs> Eventually it did. <laughs> it got hit by a jack loon. That's for damn sure. And <laughs> Wearing my sneakers, man, it was like they kept they kept on squishing, like it wasn't wasn't doing the getting the job done. But I got the job done, and and anyways, that's why you can't stomp an animal out in Crocs. <laughs> now you're gonna lose listeners, <laughs> and, and also don't do it on the grass, right? Pull them over to the cement, get it going. Yeah, American History X style. <laughs> so the cat gets hit by a car. It's inside out. It's dying. It's mewling. It's looking at me for for help. So I give it the help, right? And then the rest of the episode, I talk about like a woman dying while she's holding my hand and my like a 17-year-old a kid I'm working with who like passes away right in front of me. And all the reviews are, are you sure you had to do that to that cat? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm absolutely certain. What about all the other horrible things that happened in the episode? You worry about that? That happened to the humans. <laughs> Anyways. Well, I'm glad we got the trigger warning out of the way. So mm. uh, I guess another good trigger warning would be this is going to be the worst episode of TCK in terms of brutality and disturbed disturbed nature that we have done to date. So it's almost fitting that you're here today yeah. instead of the op. It's right. almost fitting that the op suddenly found out he had to take his parents to Ireland. <laughs> and on that, we're going to hop right in. How about it, Jack? I'd like to. Yes. Like I said, we're doing today's episode on Jesse Harding Pomeroy, one of the first child serial killers that ever existed. Actually, maybe the only. Can you name another one? There's mass shooters, obviously. <sighs> oh, there are more. There was that girl, Mary, forget her name, Bell. Um, but other than that, nah, man. I mean, how how young was he? When he started killing? When he started? So there was a an escalation phase, but he started doing deviant stuff to other kids around 10 years old. Yeah, there's a few. There's a few. But um, I'll let you talk about this one and stay out of your way here. We're going to start before he was born, and that's going to start August 20th, 1857, when a 22-year-old fella by the name of Thomas Pomeroy marries a 16-year-old young lady by the name of Ruth Ann Snowman, and they get married in Charlestown, Massachusetts. Now, obviously, this is soon-to-be Jesse Pomeroy's mother and father. He's 22 years old. She's 16. Now, during this period, Jack, in Charlestown, Mm -hmm. it was one of the worst slums and the most dangerous places to be in in South Boston. Yeah. Rough place to grow up. Raise a family. You know, you run down the street to get a bag of bread and ended up getting molested or whatever. I I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know what I heard about this place is, you know, the the movie The Town. Um, There's a couple of... Ben Affleck and Jeremy Renner? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Is it Renner? Is that it's not as bad. Like, they they make it out to be, like, this really bad uh, place for bank robberies and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And apparently... Only like 2% of bank robberies happen in Massachusetts, and not that many really happen there. And the people of that area were really pissed about that movie. They're like, sure, it was bad at that time, but not that bad. And uh, that, I don't know, Ben Affleck might have exaggerated things slightly. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it was that bad in 1857. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, shitty place to live. March 6th, 1858, though. So, a little under a year after they get married. The couple, they give birth to their first child. And arguably, I think even from an objective standpoint, their best one, because hindsight is twenty twenty. This young man's name is Charles Pomeroy. Don't worry about remembering his name. He's relatively unimportant in the story. But that is... Jesse's older brother. Jesse hasn't been born yet. His brother Charles, though, born March 6th, 1858. All right. Now, through deductive reasoning, we can surmise, Jack, that somewhere around February of 1859, Thomas there and Ruth Ann fuck again because (laughs) she ends up pregnant with the spawn of Satan and that fetus growing inside her belly will eventually be named Jesse Harding Pomeroy. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, while Ruth Ann was pregnant with Jesse, she'll later say, many years down the road, that her husband Thomas was a butcher at that time. So Jesse, this little son of a bitch, is growing in her in her belly. And and while that's happening, Thomas is, is, a, bu- is a butcher, his dad. And mm. Ruth's favorite thing was to go down to the slaughterhouse where Thomas worked as Jesse grew in her stomach. And she loved watching Thomas slaughter the calves and sheep. She, she she she's very honest about the fact that she enjoyed watching it and she would even help him occasionally because she enjoyed it. Later, this will be Ruth's excuse for why Jesse does the things that he does. She blames herself. And uh, this is going to be a running theme with Ruth Ann making excuses for Jesse Pomeroy and downright denying anything that he's done wrong for the rest of his life. So Ruth was the one who got turned on by this slaughterhouse shit? Yeah, well, I don't know about turned on. I don't know if it made her pussy wet. <laughs> It like she enjoyed it. She really loved it. Uh, this was just something, and she claims it was something that that was had something to do with her pregnancy while with while Jesse was in her stomach. Something about being my wife just liked Snickers bars. Right, right. But we've all heard the rumors about chicks getting horny when they're pregnant. You know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, I've and never I'm, seen proof of, proof of it myself either. But I've never seen proof of chicks getting horny while I'm around at all. Right. I mean, either. <laughs> <laughs> it's reminiscent of uh, Catherine Knight, you know, the Australian killer. She, yeah, that, um, that saucy redhead. <laughs> who skinned her boyfriend. She was a real uh, whippersnapper, that Catherine oh, Knight. buddy. She would spin the bean while he was friggin' uh, slicing off pig's heads and shit. Didn't yeah. she butcher him, too? Oh, yeah. yeah and oh, big time. Did she, uh, if memory serves, she cooked him as well, didn't she? She did, and and left a pot boiling on the stove with um, place settings for his children uh, and saying, hey, dinner's on the stove. I covered it in a monstro, or we covered it in a monstro, a defunct podcast. I don't even bother looking for it, I guess, but uh, he could if he wanted to. Um, You won't be able to spell it, so. Uh, It is uh, one of the things that we covered there, and yes, she tried to to feed his children his head. It's kind of sweet. It was very, you know romantic in in its own way as a father there's nothing that feels better than being able to feed your children (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 he fulfilled his purpose almost they didn't eat him but Uh, anyway it's quite close (laughs) our shithead and the focus of this episode jesse harding pomeroy was born on november 29th 1859 in charleston massachusetts and he was born sickly and with a cleft palate to, uh, as I mentioned, Thomas and Ruth Ann Pomeroy. So mm. he's the uh, second child of them and the last child, and he is a year and a half younger than his brother, Charles. 
That uh, cleft palate thing, there's a guy who serves us at the bar all the time, and he always calls me a cock-sucking hair lip. And I was like, one day I was like, you know, I understand the cock-sucking thing, but like, hair lip? What's a hair lip? He's like, you know, like a cleft palate, and when they stitch it back together, I was like, oh, okay. All right, well, can you please stop calling me a cocksucker? <laughs> Famous cleft palate, by the way, how Queen Phoenix Mm-hmm, that's right. How queen. Palette, and that's a good-looking dude. It's a pretty common mm-hmm. thing. Not a really big deal. It can. We, we have the technology now to fix it. And honestly, seeing pictures of Jesse Pomeroy as he was older, his cleft palate had to have been one of the less serious cases by far because it's not noticeable as he got older. Right. There's a UFC fighter right now, Hamzat Shemaev, who's going to be like on top of the world soon. And uh, he's got a nasty one. Conor McGregor keeps on calling him Rat Lip. Pretty mean. Well, that's fun. You know? Um, yeah. <laughs> Ratliff. Connor McGregor. <laughs> I fucking hate that guy so much. <laughs> Me too. Me too. One of the greatest trash talkers of all time, though. You hate him or love him. I mean, he can really spit it out. I he follow can. his Instagram, and he has, uh, he, yeah. he's got like the, I think, maybe the worst case of Napoleon complex ever. I don't know how tall oh, yeah. he is. If you look at his Oof. shoes and any of his posts on Instagram, he wears lifts. So that he's like two inches taller. Than- yes. Yeah. He's like five eight with uh, high heels on. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, his father. So, like I said, Jesse's born with a cleft palate. He's sickly, little sickly baby. Mm. And uh, his father Thomas immediately saw these health issues as a sign of weakness. This is the 1800s. I mean, yeah. You got to be able to fight the Confederates. You got to be able to work in the coal. And and born as a sickly child in the 1800s, you're just, I mean, you're lucky they didn't throw you off a cliff. <laughs> you're right. You're lucky <laughs> they call you to dinner. Yeah. Uh, there's an old saying my grandfather had, call me anything, just don't call me late to dinner. Yeah. And these kind of kids will get called late to dinner for sure. <laughs> so September 16th, 1862, a little over two years after Jesse is born, the Civil War is at its peak. Jesse is three years old, and that's when his dad, Thomas, he enlists in the Army. Mm -hmm. So Jesse is three years old. His dad runs off, joins the Army to fight the Civil War, and Thomas is assigned to the 5th Infantry Regiment on the Union side. And he goes to war. He's not there long. Nine months total he served, which is a normal enlistment period for the Union in those times, by the way. I know a lot of people are like, well, he wasn't there long. Nine months was a normal enlistment (laughs) period in the Union during those times. All right. But he does go to to war in Roanoke, Virginia— he survives the war and is discharged soon after on July 2nd, 1863. Nine months would be enough in the types of wars yeah, they were the fighting Civil back then. Yeah, Civil War? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're lucky to survive three days. Even if there wasn't a war, you're lucky to survive <laughs> just that you didn't die from starvation and trench foot. Yeah, yeah. die from being uh, alive in 1863. Yeah, even if he didn't <laughs> join the military, if he just lived in a hut. Somewhere in Boston, never joined the military to survive nine months is like God, things are going well. Yeah, yeah. I won't interrupt too much here, man. I know you put a lot of work into this, but I got I got to share something with you. I think you probably know this, but who told me this? Maybe it was you that, or maybe it was the op that uh, uh, Putin is obviously very popular in Russia. But one of one of the big reasons why people are so supportive of him is that like the average age that a man lives in uh, Russia is like 58 or something like that. And Putin's like 72. Right. So he, to the, all these widowed women, 
is like the epitome of a man. Look how healthy he is, you know? Look at look at look how robust he is. Look how manly he is. And all our men just died. And the reason why is because, you know, they're pickling he's well their protected. internal organs with vodka <laughs> from the age yeah. of 11 on because of the crippling depression and rigid cold, which yeah. reminds me a lot of where you live. Oh, God. It just warmed up. It goes from negative 40 to plus 25. Now I'm sweating bullets. Putin. More like Putin. pooping. Am I right? <laughs> That's what I'm doing. <laughs> All right. So like I said, Thomas goes yeah. to the Civil War and he survives nine months on the front lines, comes home. After he gets out, he comes home. Jesse's now four years old. He becomes a stoker in the Navy Yard <laughs> nearby. And he was responsible, not a super exciting job, physically backbreaking, but he's responsible for keeping the fires blazing that powered the boiler that pumped out the dry docks. Pretty boring job, <laughs> physically torturous yeah. job. This guy's had a rough life, to say the least. Now, Jesse's mother, Ruth Ann, she was a dressmaker. She made dresses, a sewer. Oh, you got one it. One would That's call her. Good job. Yeah, sure. That's a call back to one of the episodes. I don't remember which one where I made a fucking idiot of myself. <laughs> <laughs> you meant that when you said I a 100% sewer? I 100% meant it. I looked Man, up. That's crazy. I looked up what a sewer was, and it just kept telling me about waste management. So I was like, <laughs> this is frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable, man. Yeah. I mean, it's believable. I'm kind of retarded. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as Jesse grew up, he was 100% a mama's boy. Uh, she loved him very much. Always told him that he was a handsome and special little man. Uh, even with his cleft palate and his fucking huge head. We'll get into the head size here in a little bit. But his father, Thomas, was a raging alcoholic with a horrible temper. And I don't blame him. He just survived the Civil War, and now he's having to keep the fires hot down at the dockyard by standing in front of a burning furnace of hell all day, every day, keeping the coals hot while his weird little Frankenstein son. <laughs> no wonder we're all so fucked up, you know, like lower class guys. Like our, all of our, our descendants were like this. They went through shitty wars, and then they came out and worked shitty jobs. Horrible and then jobs. They came home beat their ugly wives with their stupid, ugly children. <laughs> now, Ruth Ann, Jesse's mother, would often observe Jesse from a very young age, stabbing the meat the family would have before it was cooked. So they'd be, Ruth Ann would be trying to get dinner prepared, which is probably <laughs> mutton or something like that, yeah. whatever you ate in so, the 1800s, whatever. It was just a vague meat. Nobody really knew what it was. You didn't question yeah. it. Mm -hmm. You just ate the meat, didn't know where it came from. Half the time, it was probably people. It could be. Yeah. But she would often see Jesse uh, with his little, he always carried a little pocket knife. He would just stand at the counter and just stab the meat over and over and over again. From a young age, he was obsessed with stabbing meat. Oh, my God. You imagine being the father walking past that even today? Coal on your face. <laughs> you're like, you're tired. You had, like, a piece of bread and some hot salt water for lunch while you are at work that day. Ugh. You walk past your little Frankenstein son stabbing the meat. Just, God damn it. Oh, for fuck's sake. He, he's going to catch an elbow, right? Like a quick one. He catches a lot more than that. <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. All right. Heads up. Thomas isn't a very good dude. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> See? <laughs> It's crazy about this time too. You got you got to remember that there's like no television, no nothing. Like they have books, maybe to like distract them from how much they hate their home life. 
it's it's just all encompassing. Like everything around you. Like he'd be sitting there with coal on his face, like he said, and with his kids all around him and his wife there. And like there's no real great distractions like we have today. It's not no like TV, he, not, no radio, no, just just your coal <laughs> and di- and disease <laughs> and your shitty family. <laughs> you look over. You're just trying to relax. Your kids just shoving a knife into the human meat that you're going to have to eat in a minute. Right. His teeth are all showing because his lips don't connect. (laughs) Now, Jesse didn't like school, hated school, and he hated school because he got bullied a lot for his looks. I bet. And that's to be expected. Big deal, though. You know, not an excuse for his later crimes. I got bullied in middle school, too. Right. And I got bullied when I hit my chubby phase in middle school, and that phase lasted until I am 35. <laughs> yeah. That baby fat. Tits Chingus, they called me. Tits <laughs> Chingus. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Be like, hey, here comes Tits Chingus <laughs> with his tits and his chins. Oh, made me so mad. I'd Still mad. Stab me. <laughs> I want to go into a little bit of Jesse's looks, though, here, Jack. Oh, good. We haven't done it already. Because there's a bit, there's a pretty big part that I left out up until right now. Mm -hmm. Jesse's right eye was almost completely white. It was a zombie eye. Okay. Now we don't know why exactly. There's a lot of stories as to how this happened. Uh, Some stories say cataracts caused it. Um, Other stories say it was caused by corneal scars from a childhood illness. Um, Some say he got a facial infection when he was a baby. Um, Another story said it, it was caused by a smallpox vaccination. There are a few theories about his eye ended up permanently jizzed on, but we don't know why, honestly. That, that's that been lost to history. But he had this really creepy, completely white eye oh, man. that he was blind in. So he was blind in one eye. Maybe his dad punched him in it. It looked like he was wearing a Walking Dead facial lens from the show The Walking Dead. That's what it looked like. A zombie oh, eye. He had a zombie eye. Very creepy. What a picture. Very creepy. Mm-hmm. Jesse also had a massive head. Okay, <laughs> dude. I'm glad this kid is, you know, about to do something horrible because we're being pretty hard on him here. Uh, massive head, cleft palate, milky eyes, stabbing meat. Uh, it's important to point out that by the time he's about eight, nine, ten years old, the cleft palate's almost better. Like it's not really okay. noticeable. Oh, it's, it's not a terrible one. Right. Now, obviously, all the pictures that we have of him are grainy and gray, black and white, and the only picture we have of him as, as a child is drawn. By some dude mm-hmm. with coal. Mm-hmm. I but saw that. I, I would imagine he had a little scar, but it's not noticeable, the cleft palate, by the time he's eight, nine, ten years old. Yeah. But he did have a huge head, massive head. He had a, That boy was carrying around a fucking watermelon on his shoulders. But if your head is big enough to where multiple people talk about it, that's that's alarming. Yeah. No, it is. I used to call myself Lieutenant Heavyhead to make my friends laugh and walk around like I couldn't carry my head on my shoulders and just start dragging my head along the concrete and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I got picked on, too, so I just uh, made myself an open target for being picked on. You must have grown into your head because I didn't notice that whenever we met in Wisconsin. Well, it wasn't that big, but I just pretended like it was heavy. Like, like, you know, oh, man. Suddenly I just start, you know, the teacher would be talking about something and I'd slump out of my chair and start pushing my head along, uh, you know, on 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 the floor. And she'd tell me to get up and... All my friends would laugh, and then they'd think I was the coolest. Now, on top of his huge head, Jack, Jesse also had a, a wide mouth, and he looked like, <laughs> you remember Big Mouth Billy Bass, that singing bass that you would push the button and it'd be like, 
Oh, yeah. Here's a little song I wrote. <laughs> Don't work. He looked like a bass. Yeah. <laughs> he had this very wide mouth that went, that curled downward at the ends. And he just looked like he ate night crawlers. First. <laughs> I feel like it's a different song out here than that bass sings. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, it's like Midnight at the Oasis. Do you well, know that song? I've seen where you live, and I feel like the bass out there would. For like positive thinking reasons, would sing something about trying to get you guys to not kill yourselves. Yeah, when the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see. Actually, that would make everybody kill themselves. So the bass is just continuing to sing that song, and we're all friggin' shooting ourselves in the head. That's one of my favorite, most favorite songs ever. Oh man, not mine. Jesse had this wide mouth, this bass mouth. He had large ears. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like we said, huge head, wide mouth, large ears, cleft lip. Milky eye. eye. Yeah. He's got the, I mean, this is a miniature Frankenstein. (laughs) I mean, if you add stitches, this is (laughs) square jawed. That's another thing that people talk about, say about Jesse a lot. Very square jawed. Yeah. Yeah. This is literally a little miniature Frankenstein without the stitches. Or the bolts in the neck. Or the bolts in the neck, yeah. His own dad couldn't look at him because mm-hmm. he thought he was creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and he often called Jesse Harding that goddamn jack-o'-lantern of ours. <laughs> that's, that's how he referred to Jesse when he was talking to, the, to his wife. Said, that goddamn jack-o'-lantern of ours. Oh man, everybody's so like caring about their kids these days. And back then, the fucking goddamn jack o' lantern. Oh, in 1866, at seven years old, while he was in the second grade, he was once sent home from school for sneaking up on younger kids, popping up out of nowhere, and making (laughs) scary faces at them. And honestly, he probably wasn't making faces at all. He was just. trying to make friends he's just trying to say hi (laughs) Uh, one day and everybody's like you shouldn't make fun of this kid give me just a minute let's get into his crimes here in a little bit right one day he was getting bullied so bad that he bounced out went to the docks where his father worked so his father's there the one like escape that he has is going to hell here and stoking the fires of hell for a minute he's there working he runs away from school and goes to the docks where his father worked. And his dad was so embarrassed that his coworkers had seen his son that he left work with Jesse. He left work with that goddamn jack-o'-lantern, marched him straight home, stripped him, tied him up to a beam in the attic, and beat him with a horse whip. Okay. I'm try to taper off my laughing on that, but man, something. A little much, <laughs> I think. I think. That's a little like much. stripped him, stripped him naked, stripped him butt naked, and then tied beat him, him with a horse whip, tied him tied up to him a beam, to a his beam. wrists to a beam, mm-hmm. and beat him with a horse whip. And this is kind of a running. This is why I said Thomas is also kind of a piece of shit. Uh, uh, actually, one hundred percent a piece of shit. His father beat him and his beat Jesse and his brother Charles with a horse whip pretty regularly. This was regular punishment, and he wasn't content with just whooping them once with a horse whip. He would strip them, tie them to beams, and beat them ruthlessly. Yeah. 
His mother hated it, by the way. She was like, I don't appreciate this. <laughs> I don't approve. I think this is wrong. <laughs> and he would beat them till they were bloody. Jesse, though, because this was these beatings continued into a very formative time of his life, mm-hmm. he began to think of these beatings in a sexual way and started getting sexual pleasure from them. Classic. He's getting beat. He's naked. His, he starts getting erections and stuff. He's like, oh, maybe I was a bad little boy. I was a, <laughs> go ahead and beat this little bass. <laughs> You're right. I am a naughty little jack-o'-lantern, Papa. <laughs> yeah, Papa the Boner. Take out all your anger on this little bluegill. <laughs> so, yeah, what was, wait, wait, what was, uh, what's that joke? What, what was Moby Dick's dad's name? Jerry. Papa Boner. Oh. Not bad, a eh? Classic. Jesse's starting to hit puberty. His sexuality is fusing with this obsession with taking beatings. He loves it. And uh, because of the bullying that he was facing at school and the beatings from his father, Thomas, Jesse would then started turning around and bullying uh, anybody smaller than him and weaker than him at school. Yeah. So the uh, the victim eventually becomes the bully. The prey becomes the predator. Eventually. And I'll say I'll say classic for the third time. A word I hate, but I've used it three times now. Yes, and it is. This is tip. This is classic stuff right here. This sure is how is. bullies are made for the most part. There are occasionally just little shitheads that are just bullies from the get go. Little privileged shits whose dads work at the golf course and. And do investments on the side. They, they also turn out to be bullies, but <laughs> just like Jesse Pomeroy, you know, <laughs> he had it all. Now, another thing that started, uh, well, what they at the time claimed fueled what would happen later was Jesse's love of dime store western novels, and those mm-hmm. were meant for adults, and they were usually about cowboys and Indians, and Jesse loved the violence and the death in them. Right. But this is kind of like when Columbine, the Columbine shooters, they tried to blame it on Doom, the video game, and Marilyn oh, Manson, yeah. right? We've been doing this forever, blaming media for horrible sure. acts. I, I don't know that I buy this. Oh, I don't buy it at all. I mean, cowboys and Indians? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that'll, that'll turn you into whatever, whatever happens here. Cowboys and First Nations is actually, I think, what we're supposed to be saying these days, Kent, by the way. Well, you can say that. In 1868... <laughs> Cowboys and indigenous peoples, My please. wife is an Indian. I can say whatever I know. the fuck I <laughs> you, want. You can't that fucking stupid squaw. I got two little Indian kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> in 1868, at nine years old, Jesse's mother, she gets tired of the probably the crippling depression and overwhelming silence of her hot, stuffy, non-air-conditioned house. And she wants to bring a few canary, little canary birds in to brighten up the home, take out the mm. the sadness right. and the probably the, the coal dust on everything. Oh, it'd be so nasty in there. She, drives, she buys a few little canaries, little singing birds. She liked the sound of songbirds. She brings them in. And not long afterwards, a matter of days, she comes home one day to find both of her little sweet little songbirds at the bottom of the cage with their heads twisted off. <laughs> right. Fortunately, she was able to tape the heads back on and sell them to a blind kid in a wheelchair down the street. <laughs> That's what I was laughing at, okay, for everyone <laughs> listening. That's what I was I saw that coming. Uh, what's that from, Dumb and Dumber? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty bird. <laughs> Polly want a cracker? Betting it. <laughs> Pretty bird. I was able to raise 15 extra bucks before we left. <laughs> 
<laughs> part two sucked. Ah, uh, it was terrible. Oh man, it was terrible. very disappointing. They also had a. They also made a a prequel Dumb and Dumber movie where they're yeah. young, played by two different people, uh, yeah. and they're in high school, and it wasn't any good either. Jeez. My favorite part of Dumb and Dumber, the original, though, it makes me like my sides hurt every time, is when Jim Carrey finds their their little songbird dead in the cage with its head its head off, and he goes, "This is it, man. This is it. We got no food." We got no money. Our pets' heads are falling off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just saw Jim Carrey last night. I think it's his last movie. He retired from acting is what I heard. He was in Sonic 2. <laughs> Jim Carrey has kind of lost his mind, though. Uh, what well, kind of, yeah. He's yeah, out of yeah. it. What do you expect? I mean, he's he's a Toronto kid. He's from out here, Canada. You know, he um, they they used to knock on the door. He'd be in the bathroom so long doing impersonations, and he'd answer the door as like Bill Cosby. <laughs> Can't do that now. That's a hate crime. <laughs> but he wouldn't come out of the bathroom. He'd keep on talking like whoever he was imitating. And they're practicing dropping things and drinks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he gets, they were so poor, they lived in a car for a while and all that. He had a kind of a rough childhood, man. He, he's a, he's a, he gave us a lot of good movies, man. He gave us a lot of laughs, that's for sure. The Mask, Dumb and Dumber. Oh, man. So many, even me, myself, and Irene, which was the first, like, really. I, I didn't mind it. Profane, vulgar <laughs> movie that he made. I, mm-hmm. I laughed so hard. Yeah, man. So back to these fucking dead birds. Like I said, you know, his mom, for her entire life, Jesse's mom will make up excuses and insist that her son did nothing wrong. Jesse did nothing wrong all the way to the day of her death. Um, she probably sees these dead birds and has no clue that Jesse did it right. Despite all these obvious clues, the clues that he's got a wide eye. He's a fucking jack-o'-lantern. He's stabbing the meat. He's a bully. This will be a running theme. Uh, despite all the hints that he's demented, right? She probably saw these birds laying on the bottom of the cage and thought to herself, Oh no. Yeah. Somebody has broken into our home and twisted our birds' heads off. Right. And and the father comes home, and he's working at a coal mine or whatever all day, like a canary in a coal mine, right? He's like, yeah. good God. Oh, that fucking jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> She's like, he did not. Thomas, he forces oh. himself on her because it's 1800. <laughs> oh, yeah, he totally forced himself on her. <laughs> It's a typical 1800s relationship. <laughs> it was every child was birthed from rape. Yeah. A former schoolmate, later on, of a former schoolmate of Jesse's, a man by the name of George Thompson, would say that he remembered that while that when they were kids growing up in the neighborhood, they would all be playing games together. But Jesse would always sit off to the side in the dirt, cross-legged, just stabbing the ground with a knife. That was his <laughs> favorite pastime. While the other kids were playing hopscotch and football and saying racial slurs. He was just sitting Indian style, just stabbing the ground with a knife. Yeah. The one game that he would partake in, the only game he would partake in, Jesse would partake in with the other kids, was Cowboys and Indians. The difference for Jesse, though, whenever they played Cowboys and Indians, was Jesse always wanted to play the role of Simon Gertie, who would lead the Shawnee Indians on the warpath against the white settlers. Hmm. And Jesse liked playing that role because whenever they captured the Cowboys, the kids playing the Cowboys, he got to imagine up elaborate ways to torture and kill them. I'm going to sit here and act like I know who Simon Gertie is and who the Shawnee Indians are as well. Uh, just a character that uh, a white guy that led the Indians to to kill white people. That's I mean, this is very progressive yeah. of Jesse. 
uh, for the time, honestly. He's now considered a hero in many college universities by angry upper-class privileged white kids who think they know what the world is like. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I heard of him. (laughs) He's on T-shirts. Like I said, after the Canaries, they were no longer allowed to have pets in the house because Jesse would kill them. But on December 26th, 1871, it turns out that Jesse graduates from animals because on this day, December 26, 1871, two men are walking along Chelsea Creek in South Boston when they hear a whimper. Just a little. (laughs) (laughs) The wind is blowing hard on this night. Uh, It's very cold. It's December, late December. It's cold. Wind's blowing hard. Clouds in the sky. As they get closer to the whimper, these two men see that it's coming from a small shack on a place called Powderhorn Hill. Powderhorn Hill is still there to this day in South Boston, and uh, it's just a hill crest. That's all it is. They still call it Powderhorn Hill. But on Powderhorn Hill, in a small outhouse, they find four-year-old, a little four-year-old boy by the name of Billy Payne. Mm -hmm. Billy Payne is hanging from his wrists by a rope tied to a big beam in the outhouse, and he was almost dead. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Why, because my kid's four years old? Oh, that went really dark, but no, uh, because uh, uh, Jesse's dad, this is exactly how Jesse's dad disciplined them. Oh, right, 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 right. Oh, no. I'm talking just, about your fucking son. In the no. situation. Oh, oh, sorry. All right. Billy Payne, a- little four-year-old Billy Payne was naked, <laughs> and he had been beaten brutally. His lips were blue, and his hands were swollen and purple from being tied up so long. He had been hanging for hours. Billy's in pain. He's in a lot of pain. This is uh, this is December twenty. This is the day after Christmas. The day after Christmas, yes. Mm-mm. And also, it's a four-year-old. It's a four-year-old little boy uh, whose lips are blue and his hands are swollen purple from being tied up. And one thing about shacks, I'll say, in the eighteen hundreds, very windy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we hadn't figured out insulation yet. No. In the eighteen hundreds, with outhouses. <laughs> no. Wait a minute, outhouses. Or yeah, it was, it was an old outhouse, shack outhouse. It was an outhouse. Oh, it was a shit? Like, people, where people take shits? Where people shits, where people do shits. And he said, wow, that's a rough place to be, to be in general. Yeah, very, very breezy. And stinky. And stinky. Uh, the two men, they cut, they cut little Billy Payne down, they wrap him in their coats, and they take him home. And uh. it's then, obviously, that his parents instantly contact the police. And the police think this is a one-off situation. Obviously, we wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. If it was, though, it's only going to get worse from here. At this point in time, Jesse Pomeroy is 12 years old. How do the parents contact the police at this time? You have to go on foot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. While your kid's laying in your windy shack, likely, trying to get the feeling back in his hands. Yeah. Fortunately, this this young man did survive. Good. To live a long, healthy life and have a family of his own. Mm, And became Albert Fish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Actually, the time frame, if you think about it, does add up. It's close. Oh, it Albert does. Fish was, what, 1912? I think so. Yeah, when he was starting to kill him, right? Yeah. If he's four years old at this time, this is 1871, say 30 years. So, or, or that was 40 years later, that means that uh, he'd be in his 50s by the Albert time F- Albert Fish starts. Yeah, Albert Fish was, Fish was born in 1870. 
Anyways, we shouldn't be picking on another little boy. We got yeah. I think it's good for the show when we take a an innocent four year old boy here that's done nothing wrong, and then later and then say that he's out. He turns out to be Albert Fish. That's always good. That's good look for the show. I think <laughs> we got bigger fish to fry. I guess here. Right? Ah, yeah, this fucking bass that's out here killing these kids. <laughs> Hurting these well, kids. When the night is young. And the land is dark. <laughs> I won't be afraid. Oh, I won't be afraid. Stand by me. Two months later, on February 21st, 1872. So, two months after Billy Payne is attacked, a little seven year old boy by the name of Tracy Hayden is out playing in the street in front of his house. So he's doing whatever kids do in 1872, playing. He's probably dying of pneumonia, right? And uh, or just depression. <laughs> yeah, he's probably got, got a stick with the with the uh, hula hoop where they roll it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know right. what was that game. I don't know, a little Italian boy game. Yeah, they push it down the street through puddles and all that. Yeah, I don't know what that was. Stick 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 wheel. I think they called it. So seven year old Tracy Hayden, he's playing in the street. We'll say he's playing with the stick and the and the hula hoop. Mm-hmm. When he's approached by what he would later say was a big boy with brown hair, who asked him if he quote, Wanna go to the Powderhorn Hill to see the soldiers? Unquote. All right. So he asked him if he wants to go to Powderhorn Hill to see the soldiers. Now, going off this last attack, we know Powderhorn Hill is probably not a place that any young man needs to be right now because this will be uh this will be Jesse's stomping ground. Mm-hmm. Little seven-year-old Tracy Hayden agrees, and Jesse then lures him away to the same abandoned outhouse that Billy Payne had been found in. Tracy says that the second he gets him in the outhouse, Jesse's demeanor cha- changes. Mm-hmm. He slams the door behind him. Once he gets them alone, Jesse does, and then strips Tracy Hayden, shoves a handkerchief into his mouth, binds him to the ceiling beam, just like he had Billy, and beats him with a board, a broken board, and a rope. He ended up knocking out Tracy's front teeth. He breaks his nose. He beats him severely. But the boy does fortunately live and later tells police that the kid that did it to him also threatened to cut off his penis. Mm. Uh, <laughs> sounds like Albert Fish again, man. Uh, it uh, does. You know, it's yeah. funny about the, it's hilarious about these old stories <laughs> about children getting uh, horribly beaten is that you don't feel that bad about it. Like, I mean, I feel bad. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. You feel bad, too. I can see it in your eyes, right? Yeah. I mean, I felt worse with the canaries. <laughs> like I like the listener that's angrily topping up. I didn't like it when they killed the canaries. <laughs> There's a real disconnect if it happened, like, I don't know, a century and a half ago almost, right? Because it feels like fiction. It does. Yes. Yes. I felt that with the Albert Fish case, too. Like, I, I feel really bad about it, but I, I wouldn't feel... I don't know. If this it, happened it, 10 years some... ago, it would still be fucking horrifying. Yeah. Imagine this happened like, yeah, like 10 years ago. We'd probably be singing a different tune. But, I mean, I'm having a good time so far. Good, man. Uh, that's why I picked this one, because of how upbeat <laughs> and it you is. Know, you know, I like these kind of stories. I have a four-year-old myself. I don't know if I mentioned that already. He's strung up behind me. That's, that's... <laughs> Three months later, May 20th, 1872. So three months after this last little fellow was attacked, an eight-year-old by the name of Robert Mayer right. is playing in the street, just like the last one, when Jesse Pomeroy sots his old jack-o'-lantern eyes in on him. 
Jesse walks up to him and asks him if he wants to go with him to see Barnum's Circus. And what eight-year-old would say no to Barnum's Circus? <laughs> back then, no, not one. Not one. Not one back then. Not one, no. And unfortunately, to get to Barnum's Circus, we've got to go over Powderhorn Hill, Jesse says. Mm. On their way there, they, they walk alongside an algae-covered pond. And uh, at one point, Jesse, while walking past this pond, Jesse grabs Robert by the arm and tries to push him in. But the boy breaks free and says, why'd you do that? <laughs> but the second he asks, Jesse just punches him in the side of the head and then drags him up to Powderhorn Hill to the to the outhouse. Are you sure this is an outhouse or like it's a shack? It is an outhouse. So he keeps on taking these kids to this shitter? So I think this is a larger outhouse than what you're picturing. Like an outbuilding? So this was an outhouse on the backside of an old brickyard. So it's mm. like an industrial outhouse. Oh, okay. An abandoned brickyard. It wasn't a brickyard anymore. It was closed down, but it was the outhouse for the employees. Okay. So I imagine it's probably like a big one, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Still breezy. <laughs> yeah. But not like a single man shitter. No, it'd be hard to hang kids in, in one of those is all I'm trying to think about. You yeah, know, this is banging. a roomy outhouse. All right. This is a nice one, as my family would say. <laughs> yeah. Today, they would say that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Jesse punches this kid in the side of the head after pushing him into the algae-covered shit, shit pond, <laughs> fails, and drags him up to this outhouse. And uh, once he gets him alone inside there, of course, he yada, yada, yada. Same song and dance. Strips him. Only this time, he shoves a milk cork in the boy's mouth Ugh. and then ties him to a post with clothesline. A milk cork. A milk cork. A milk cork. I could picture yeah. that. It's the most know? 1,800 things ever. 1,800 thing ever. <laughs> But a milk cork is probably the size of, like, if you picture, like, a mug, maybe a mug and a half. Eh, maybe a mug, right? Because the milk the milk jugs, the way they used to work is they would come, they'd be fat at the bottom, they would get a little bit slimmer, and then they would be wider at the top, I believe. Yeah, they had a big mouth on them, mm-hmm. like Jesse. Yeah, yeah, a gaping mouth on them. So Jesse starts beating uh, this little fellow with a stick. Only, and the difference in this time and the past two times is while he starts beating him with a stick, Jesse is super excitedly jumping around, dancing. So he's dancing. Well, I don't. And they never specified what kind of dance. I imagine he's fucking. He's doing the robot and shit. Right? <laughs> moonwalking, yeah. whop. And then he fucking moonwalks backwards, right. leans forward, does that Michael Jackson thing where he like leans forward and looks like he's defying gravity. <laughs> yeah. Whop. Right. Robot. No more Eddie got Tony Scott. Right. Yeah. The kid's there with a milk fucking cork in his mouth and he's doing the Macarena in front of his face. Yeah. He's thinking this is, this is odd. <laughs> this is a predicament that I'm in. Mm-hmm. I got to say this milk cork taste tastes like sawdust <laughs> and this kid's hitting me and doing the goddamn robot. And I don't even know what the robot is because it's not invented for another hundred years. Right. So. Right. Jesse was a trailblazer. Hilarious situation. So Jesse's beating this kid with a stick, jumping around, <laughs> dancing, laughing. He's just so excited to be in this situation, so happy. At one point, he stops, pulls the cork out of the young boy's mouth, and then begins to force the young boy to start saying bad words and phrases. And uh, then, and the, the young man would later say that some of the words he, he made the boy say was prick, shit, uh, and kiss my ass. Those were a few. Okay. When the boy starts cussing, though, 12-year-old Jesse starts breathing heavily. And this is this is how he's breathing. He's going, uh, <sighs> and he starts reaching down into his overhauls. Mm. 
So you know how the overalls have the strap, the two oh, straps yeah. that button at the top. So there's an opening in the armpit, right? Right. He he takes his arm and pushes it down the front of his overalls and starts jerking off. Okay. While the what? little boy is saying these bad words. <sighs> so this kid is just saying prick and shit and kiss my ass and Jesse's loving it. And he leans against the wall and blows a load in his overalls. <laughs> okay. <sighs> well, starting to find it a little less funny, but I'm still chuckling to myself. Oh, we're just getting started, baby. It's going to yeah. get really bad. <laughs> this is just warming up for this fucking jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> we haven't even really got, got wild yet. Imagine doing all those all those horrible things to a kid, and then it really ramping you up by getting them to say like such, like they're really shitty swear words, right? Yeah. Like, say kiss my <laughs> ass. Amateur curse words. <laughs> so uh, he blows his load in his overalls, and that you know you're, you're it's really cracking gross because they can only do laundry like every three months. So now he's walking around for the next three months with dry jizz on the inside of his overalls. <laughs> This is 1800s denim. It's already, like, stiff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's not a flowy denim. You know, weird. Anyways, <laughs> he does threaten little Robert then and tells him that he will come back and kill him if he tells anybody about what just happened. He then makes him put his clothes back on and lets him go. When, he, when little Robert gets home, obviously his parents lose their fucking mind and a bunch of angry parents are upset over the attacks now. Police are concerned. They now see a string of attacks. They see this obviously isn't going to die out. Only, as a, as a matter of fact, it's getting worse. And they have no leads. Yeah. At some point, though, in the midst of all this uproar and anger among the, among the parents, the rumor starts to get out that the person that's torturing these kids has red hair and a beard. And that's obviously not true at all. But Jesse Pomeroy had brown hair and obviously didn't have a beard because he was 12 years old. Uh, I wasn't able to find out how that uh, this rumor started, but in the book that I read, they did hypothesize that the description that was given of the person doing this, the beard was pointed at the end and the hair was pointed at each side. So they were just described. They were just adding devil features to whoever did this in like a a way to conflate the truth. And unfortunately, (laughs) gingers take a hit on this one even though they did nothing wrong it had absolutely nothing to do with it i know you've got a little ginger yourself and he's a sweetheart oh i do yeah my lady's uh half ginger i think she's full ginger she likes to act like she's half or i don't know how you can be half but yeah man i got a real soft spot for him but gotta say they are super weird ow that i didn't expect that i gotta say uh <laughs> thought you would take up for your child late june eight- a <laughs> <laughs> they do behave as though they've been kissed by Satan. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, Jack. In late June of 1872, Jesse's mom, Ruth Ann, she's finally had enough of Thomas, uh, Jesse's dad, and she does kick him out of the house. And the reason, the breaking point for her was he had stripped Jesse and beat him with a belt for trying to run away. So he's trying to run away from home. She always had an issue with these beatings, but this one was a particularly bad one because when she came home from running errands, she saw Jesse there black and blue and bleeding and barely able to move because he'd been beaten so bad. Oh, God. That's a rough She ends up grabbing a knife and running Thomas off with a kitchen knife. Wow. Jesse's hoping she'll stab him, you know, for sure. Oh, yeah. He's probably jerking off through his overalls. (laughs) Yeah, he gets up 
on his erect penis, right? Like it, it's like a, a tripod. It pushes him up off the ground. He's all black and blue. He just gets up when he sees that woman running with that blade. Well, what his mom doesn't know is Jesse loves. That was a favorite part of his about his dad. Yeah, that was the only endearing thing about his father. He hated the alcoholism, loved the beatings. <laughs> <laughs> If he could just not drink so much and beat him, he would appreciate that. (laughs) A month and a half later, on the late afternoon of July 5th, 1872, so a month and a half after the last attack, at 3 p.m., so 3 o'clock in the afternoon, seven-year-old little Johnny Bouch is standing at the window of Polly's Toy Shop on Park Street with his hands cupped around his face looking in at the toys on display. Now, the toy that he was eyeing in particular was a little castle, little wooden castle. Mm-hmm. Johnny was on his way home. He had been playing street games with his friends all day, and he was headed home for a dinner of mutton and mashed potatoes with flour gravy. <laughs> and that's true. Mm-hmm. That's, I don't know what mutton is. What is mutton? I don't know, like a dead sheep. <clears throat> I think. Let me look it up for you quick. I think it's sheep. I think it's sheep. A sheep. Uh, what's mutton? Oh, I got mutton mutton chops here. Hold on a sec. Mutton, what is it? I think it's lamb. It might be lamb. Mutton, what is it? It's lamb. Yep. A mature ram or a ewe, at least a year old. The meat of sheep between 12 and 20 months old can be called yearling mutton. Hey, man, looks like we're both right somehow here. So it's just a vague meat. (laughs) It's just a shitty taste of meat. Yeah, gamey. So little Johnny's standing here at Polly's Toy Shop on Park Street. He's got his hands around his face. He's looking in at the toys. He's excited to get home and eat this dinner of mutton and potatoes and flour gravy. And while he's standing there looking through the window at Polly's, he gets a tap on the shoulder. When he turns around, he's facing an older boy that looks like a jack-o'-lantern, apparently. <laughs> and this little boy asks him if he wants to make two bits. <laughs> and two bits is the equivalent today of 10 bucks. Oh, so, not bad. For, a, for, you know, for a seven-year-old boy, he's like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then Jesse, Jesse tells him that he's got to take him to, quote, the man, because he need, the man needs little uh, little Johnny Bouch here to deliver a package for him. Right. So that's his job. I'll give you 10 bucks, or what is the equivalent of 10 bucks? All you got to do is deliver a package. So Johnny naturally starts following Jesse, and unfortunately, uh, Jesse, as you probably already guessed, is leading little Johnny, seven-year-old Johnny Bouch, to the dreaded abandoned outhouse that was on the backside of that old brickyard on Powderhorn Hill. Yeah. What does he do there? They uh, end up playing with the stick and the <laughs> and the, uh, the hula hoop. <laughs> and then Jesse just gives him $10. Turns out there wasn't even a package and sends him home. That's, that's great. When the night. I'm kidding. I don't want to make this fucked up. When they get to the outhouse, Jesse grabs the boy by the collar drags him into the outhouse, strips him naked, ties him up to a beam in the shack, and then beats him with a belt and tortures him until he orgasms. <laughs> right. Oh, boy. Jesse doesn't kill him, though, once yep. again. Mm-hmm. He does threaten him, though, with death if he leaves the outhouse, and then Jesse leaves through the door and disappears All into right. the day. The, scared, the poor scared little boy, this little guy, um, seven years old, because Jesse had threatened to kill him if he leaves he lays there broken and bloody for two hours naked until 5 p.m when a man walking by by the name of frank kane hears cries coming from the shack and comes to his rescue Jeez. 
Yeah, man. All jokes aside, it is tough. You know, I got two boys. I got a 10-year-old, 4-year-old. And every day they leave <clears throat> to go anywhere. Well, the 10-year-old, I don't let the 4-year-old go anywhere. I picture this exact thing happening to him. Well, what I left out was Frank Kane was wearing Crocs. And he <laughs> looked at this kid like you did a cat. And he's like, oh, I just got to stomp its head. So it... I'm kidding. He didn't do that. No. <laughs> he rescued him. I'm so uh, paranoid about things happening to my kids because of what we do. Yeah, me too. I won't even let my kids play in our fenced-in backyard right. without me being on the back porch. That's true. <laughs> I go to the to the extreme of there's a guy who walks around the neighborhood. He's I worked with him at the high school, and now he's about 20 years old. He's always been super weird. And I yelled out to him one day. I'd had a couple beers at me, you know. I came out of my garage. I've been working. I saw him walk slowly past my house and look over, and I go, hey, if I ever see you talking to my kid, I'm going to fuck you up. And he's like, okay. <laughs> he walked away. <laughs> Had he ever talked to him before? I saw him talking to him, yeah. I saw wow. him talking to him out, out my uh, window the one day, and my kid kept on walking because he's smart. Or I told him to do that. Or he's antisocial. But I told him after that, yeah, don't do that. But he just goes, okay. Okay. Because that's Canadian. That's yeah. as Canadian as it gets. Yeah. All right, sorry. Yeah. We'll do. Okay, guy. <laughs> Toodaloo. You, bet, you betcha, buddy. So obviously the police are really freaking out now. There's been a string of horrible attacks on young on young people. And they uh, they throw up an award of $500 for anybody that can give info that leads to the catching of the kid doing this. They do know it's a kid doing it. And $500 back then is equivalent today of $18,000. Oh, nice. It's a lot mm. of cheese. It's a, a lot, lot of, of bread. Ch- a lot of cheddar. Mm, yes. A lot of mutton. A lot of mutton. On August 2nd, 1872. I didn't know how to follow that up. <laughs> it's fucking, it sucked. It sucked. Who cares? <laughs> Wait, we got a coin fact or something? What the fuck do you do on this show as a co-host? What happens? What, what does that guy do? I think he Googles a lot. He does a lot of Googling. He reads for it in the script, and then he Googles stuff. <laughs> But he can be like, did you know? <laughs> and then he's playing Red Dead Redemption when he's not. <laughs> right now, we, we just lost contact with each other. So we had to get a hold of the operator. And the operator is just in his pajamas. Yeah, he's not in fucking Ireland. <laughs> he's playing a Red Dead Redemption. Oh, <laughs> he works hard, man. <laughs> On August 2nd, 1872. Jesse's mom, now a single mother, moves the family to a cheaper, small-frame house in South Boston, and that was at 312 Broadway, that little house. That, by the way, that location is now a bank parking lot. So the house is no longer there. But once they get settled in there, his mother opens up a dress shop a few doors down from their house, and it was literally just a, like you could see this dress shop from their from their house. Because that that dress shop was at three twenty seven Broadway, so just a few out a few businesses down. Jesse's older brother Charles he opens up a little newsstand in front of his mother's dress shop there, and he had his own paper route. So Charles was a good seed. I mean, you could make the argument that Jesse couldn't help all this, but Charles had the same upbringing. Mm-hmm. He just didn't look like a jack o' lantern. I guess that was the right. difference. Yeah, but uh, Charles ended up being a good, hardworking man that had his own family and and never committed a crime in his life. So well, he, he didn't take all those, you know, glorious beats. 
Pro- probably not the same amount of beats, would you figure? I mean, I, I think that you would draw a lot more of a beating being the type of child who is called by the father who is this horrible bastard. The, what does he call him? Like, Our goddamn jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he might have taken, <laughs> taken a lot of the heat there. So uh, his mom, they, they've got a new house. Not a new house. It's kind of a rickety little cheaper frame house there at 312 Broadway. She's got a business down at 327 Broadway. Jesse's brother has a little newsstand in front of his mom's business. Things are going pretty good. They're financially, they're not doing great, but they're they're stable. Mm. Charles is doing his part to make money for the household. His mom, it, Charles, it seems like picks up the slack from his father being gone. Okay. His father, Jesse's Jesse and and Charles's father though, Thomas, isn't completely out of the picture because he also moves with them. I guess so that they still have contact. And his father moves to the west end of box of Boston. And his father gets a job at a place called Quincy's Market. And Quincy's Market, by the way, is still there to this day. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> it's probably like a like a like an ancient dusty black and white photo employee of the month of yeah. of him there to this day, right? <laughs> Covered in soot. <laughs> <laughs> Just miserable. <laughs> Corners of his mouth so far down, they're sitting on his tit. Yeah, they think it's people that see it think it's a Halloween photo because he's holding a jack lantern by its hair in the photo. Yeah, but it's Jesse. Looks like he's in blackface. <laughs> right. We need to take this photo down. So yeah, Quincy's Market, where his dad 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 gets a job at, still there to this day. It's a shopping center. Jesse Pomeroy, the little jack o' lantern here, he starts attending a fairly new. School called the Bigelow School, and the Bigelow School was at 353 West 4th Street, and it is also still there to this day, by the way. It's not a school anymore now, any, anymore though. It's it's now on the National Register of Historic Places. Fun fact to no one share, that school was actually named after the uh, wrestler, Bam Bam Bigelow. That's crazy because he hasn't even been born yet, so that's <laughs> wild. Because the school was built in 1850. Well, he's, so. he's a timeless character. <laughs> a lot of people say that about Bam Bam, Bam Bigelow. Bam. My favorite Bam Bam Bigelow moment was when he gets his ass whooped by Major Payne. Yes, me too. Or the Big Boss Man comes in, you know. Uh, actually, yeah, no, I think the Big Boss Man and Bam Bam Bigelow went at it. He was in the, was he in the WCW and then he went to the WWF? Bam Bam Bigelow? Yeah. I believe so. I just remember he looked like a, a member of the Hells Angels. Yes, wearing tights with flames on them. Yeah. Like if the Hells Angels worked at Chippendales. <laughs> yeah. He'd come out to this song. It was just a shitty song. It would just go, bam, bam. And he'd come out and he had tattoos on his head. His finishing move was jumping off the top rope, and I believe it was headbutting somebody. It was, and he's dead now. Finally, after uh, a long life, he lived to be 187 years old. Uh, like I said, Jesse's now attending the Bigelow School at 353 West 4th Street. I think some of the listeners are like, why are you so specific about locations of these places and what they are now? I think it's fun for listeners that are from the areas that we do these episodes on be- to too. know like, oh, yeah, I drive by that every day. I didn't know that about that. You know, that's why I do that with these oh. Oh. With the locations. Of course, man. That's good We stuff. have a lot of listeners in Boston, so I'm sure they've heard of some of these places. Yeah. So just two weeks after they move. So two weeks. They've moved two weeks later. On Saturday morning, August 17th, 1872. It's a hot summer day. It is 10 a.m., 10 in the morning, hot summer day. It's a Saturday, good day. Little seven-year-old boy named George Pratt is walking along the shoreline there 
barefoot in the water, gathering seashells, like a little seven-year-old boy does. Just being a little boy at the ocean. Hey, man, can I step in again here? Like, we, we, like, these are, this is when little boys were, were little boys. Like, now, you know, obviously kids are always playing their video games and all that kind of stuff. But, like, when you picture a little boy for, like, the movies, like, these old movies and all that, like, kids out on their own, playing in the woods, out there just collecting seashells. Yeah. You know? Just being little boys, collecting worms. <laughs> Jesse's eating them. Do you want to play with us? Oh my God. Big mouth Billy Bass there. Keep shoving them into his face. (laughs) Right. But yeah, just little boys being little, little, little boys. Doughboy hats, I imagine. Mm -hmm. They're playing cowboys and Indians and they're using the stick as a rifle and Mm -hmm. Mm. just uh, a pure time aside from all the. uh, the racism. <laughs> right. And the homophobia. Sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of negatives. But <clears throat> you would uh, be told just to get out of the house back then, right? It's like, hey, go out there and find some fun. And if you couldn't find it, you'd just end up alone. In a shack. Tied to a <laughs> hung, beam. Hugged by your toes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mom would send them out and be like, I don't want to see you until nighttime. <laughs> right. And that's what they did, man. And it was a beautiful time because... Because I feel like now it's way more dangerous to let your kid outside by themselves. And and I've had this conversation with uh, my lady. And I think it's probably safer today more so than ever before because people are so paranoid. I feel like there's like, way more pedophiles now than there was then. Well, because of the internet. I mean, yeah. a guy just got got arrested for pedophilia right near me. But he, he was doing it all on the yeah, internet. It was your best friend. It was my buddy. <laughs> and all he wanted to do was bust a load. Uh, he, he wasn't grabbing kids off the street. So bless him. Little seven-year-old George Pratt, he's walking along the shoreline there barefoot, gathering seashells. Jesse spots him from a distance, collecting shells, and walks up and asks George if he'll help him run an errand. The boy says he doesn't want to abandon his seashells. He's all he's been collecting them all morning. He's probably got his his little his little doughboy hat pulled down. He's got his little <laughs> what what would they be wearing then? Definitely a jacket, an uncomfortable cotton sweaty jacket of some sort. Absolutely. Absolutely. Galoshes, they would have called them back then. Rubber boots, but galoshes, perhaps. Yeah, he had taken those off, though. He was barefoot, and he had his little delivery boy pants rolled up to the knee. Oh, yeah. yeah but he, he had would. a shirt full. He was he was holding his shirt. He had a shirt full of seashells that he had gathered. Uh, and he tells Jesse man. he doesn't want to abandon his seashells. He's been working, finding these things all morning. Jesse says, yeah. hey, I'll give you 25 cents, which is, by <laughs> the way, the same as two bits, what he lured right. the other boy away with earlier. Which mm-hmm. equals two, ten dollars. Ten bucks. Mm-hmm. And he says uh, he knows of, a, of an abandoned boathouse nearby that he can store his seashells in until he gets back. And George is like, "Yeah, that sounds like a good deal." He agrees. Right. But upon entering the old boathouse, because remember they moved now. Yes. He's not near Powderhorn Hill anymore. He doesn't have his old stomping ground. His old shit house. His old shit house. Upon entering this abandoned boathouse, Jesse closes the door behind them. And when George turns around, Jesse's holding a length of rope. Jesse immediately shoves the young boy down and ties him up by his wrists and ankles. All right. He shoves a dirty handkerchief in his mouth, and then Jesse takes off his own belt and begins beating him with the belt while hopping once again and dancing around in a in a frantic frenzy. Right. In between his dancing and Cupid Shuffle and whatever, he's kicking him in the head, he's kicking him in the stomach, and he's kicking him in the groin. So in the balls. Yeah, in the balls. Yeah, the little boy's naked. Right. Jesse also in this frenzy. This is kind of creepy to think that he gets into this frenzy. 
Yeah. He almost becomes animalistic. It reminds me of the Red Ripper. Oh, yeah. And Andrea Chikatilo. I was going to say this, yeah. this is the same old song and dance, you know, that uh, he's he's been perpetrating this upon little boys for a long time. Does he ramp up a little bit here, though? Not that I'm excited oh, yeah. about that, but, you know, I'm kind of. Yeah, it's getting ready to ramp up. All right. Jesse begins digging his nails into the boy's upper chest and back and scraping them down as hard and pushing in and, and digging down and scrapes as hard as he can, Ugh. bundling up bunches of flesh underneath his fingernails. Oh, God. He then leans down. The kid's crying. He leans down, opens his mouth, and bites a huge chunk out of the boy's cheek with his teeth. Okay. He then s- spits it on the ground. George begins to fade out of consciousness. He, he begins to lose consciousness. Hmm. And Jesse sees this. And Jesse can't get the excitement that he wants out of it if he's if he's not awake. Right. Jesse slaps him awake when he starts, slaps slaps him across the face. And when he opens his eyes, Jesse is now standing there holding a huge sewing needle. Mm. We're talking about one of the big ones. About this 1800s. It's like six inches long. God. When he opens his eyes and sees Jesse standing there holding it, Jesse hisses, quote, Know what I'm going to do with this now, you little bastard? <laughs> Unquote. He starts shoving the sewing needle into George's arms, chest, face, and private parts. So he's stabbing him in the arms, he's stabbing him in the face, he's stabbing him in the chest, and he's stabbing him in the in the in the groin with yeah. this huge sewing needle. George eventually rolls over on little George, he eventually rolls over onto stum- onto his stomach to protect his face and eyes. Because Jesse was next was trying to shove the sewing needle into his eyes. He start Jesse got down, started trying to pry open his eyelids to push oh. it into his into his eyes. God. George rolls over onto his stomach and covers his face in like a fetal position. And that's when Jesse reaches down because the boy's naked and also bites a huge chunk of his butt cheek off. Then he uh takes it with him and vanishes out the door into the uh into the world. Takes what with him? The butt cheek? The, the piece of butt cheek. Right. Several hours later. A fisherman hears crying coming from that old house, and inside he finds little George in there, whimpering in the fetal position, naked. Ramping up. We're ramping up. Now, Jesse's mother, being the queen of the Nile that she was, they just (laughs) moved, right, to get away from all this horrible things that are happening. (laughs) Right. They just move, and the first thing that happens when they get to this new place, the attacks are happening here, too. Imagine that. Mm. I bet she thinks she's like, Oh, no. She probably has a moment here where she's like, oh, no. Wait a minute. Right. If they were happening at the last place where we lived and Jesse was there and now they're happening here. (laughs) Oh, shit. Where Jesse lives. It can only mean one thing. (gasps) The attacker seems to have followed us. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Of all the rotten luck. This is horrible. I should protect Jesse. <laughs> what if he attacks Jesse? Right. He must be after him, in fact. I need to buy more meat so that he'll stay at the house and stab it. Yeah. Where's the I nearest? Get more canaries. <laughs> right. Canary and mutton shop. I need to make a So quick... they can warn us if the attacker comes in here. <laughs> Hopefully, that guy that broke into our house at the last place we lived in twisted our canary's heads off is still there (laughs) three weeks later on thursday september 5th 1872 jesse pomeroy attacks six-year-old 
Harry Austin, after taking him underneath a railroad bridge in South Boston, there's the same song and dance. He strips the boy, beats him, and then he pulls out his trusty pocket knife and starts stabbing the kid in the armpits, which is super disturbing to me for some reason. I don't 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 know why. Well, because it is disturbing. It really is. I mean, poke yourself as hard as you can with the thumb in your armpit right now. It's such a, like, vulnerable spot. It's ticklish. And it's soft. Yeah. So he stabs him up in the armpits. He also stabs him between his shoulder blades while laughing and cussing. Unfortunately, Jesse uh, Jesse does step his game up a little bit here because he then forces Austin legs apart. The boy's naked. He forces his legs apart and begins cutting his penis off with the pocket knife. He starts sawing away at it. He gets halfway through it before giving up, abandoning, and leaving the boy with half of his penis cut off. He didn't get it all the way off. He got it halfway off. It was still attached by some flesh and stuff. Okay. Um, No... No word if he if he they were able to save it, but I do know that this young man will later testify. So he does survive, but he's probably scarred for the rest of his life. Oh, no doubt about it. He's definitely scarred for the rest of his life. Yeah, I like how you doubled back on the description of cutting a penis off, a little boy's penis off there. Yeah, you know, I really wanted to paint an image <laughs> there. You did it. I'm the king of doubling down. <laughs> If I say something terrible and somebody tries to call me on it, I will double down on that terrible thing that I said. <laughs> Welcome to my entire life. As soon as people are uncomfortable, I'd pour it on, thinking that at some point this will work. It's like finding an armpit. Yeah. Like, oh, there's the armpit. Let's, keep, let's go deeper. <laughs> yes. Yep. I hear you. Six days later, on Wednesday, September 11th, Jesse Pomeroy lures seven-year-old Joseph Kennedy to the same vacant boathouse that he had previously in the salt marshes there on Old Colony Road. Once inside, he slams Joseph's head against the wall, strips him naked, same old song and dance, beats him. He breaks Joseph's nose. He knocks out his front teeth. He then pulls out his pocket knife. And while holding the pocket knife, he makes Joseph Kennedy kneel Mm. and then demands that he recites a profane-laced version of the Lord's Prayer. Okay. Now, you're thinking like, well, that's stupid. This is the 1800s. Yeah. Christianity still owned the United States at this point. Mm-hmm. So being forced to get on your knees and recite, especially to a seven-year-old, the, a yeah. version of the Lord's Prayer full of curse words. Right. Just kill me. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about a time where, I mean, even when I was a kid, if I swore and I wasn't religious, I would do a little prayer in my head like, sorry, God. Yeah, right. I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> I did that too. <laughs> And I wasn't even religious. I mean, you're, you had a Baptist uh, situation going on, didn't you? Yeah, I was baptized twice. <laughs> the first one didn't take. They gave me two polio shots by accident. Did they really? Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so this is the breaking point for Joseph because he refuses. He re- What a badass, this little seven-year-old. Yeah. He refuses because it was blasphemous. And whenever he refuses to recite, he's like, just kill me. Wow. Yeah. Jesse then begins slashing, like, ruthlessly at his face, his back, and his thighs with the pocket knife. So he's just circling around him while he's there on his knees, just slashing like a madman. Damn. At his face, the back of his head, his back, and his thighs. And he still won't do it. He still won't. He still won't do it. (sighs) So this little boy... Uh, he's covered in extremely deep lacerate, deep deep cuts all over his body. Then 
Jesse kicks the door open to this boathouse. Keep in mind, this thing is built on the marshes of, of the beach, right? In mm-hmm. this marshland, saltwater. Jesse kicks the door open, drags the little boy, Joseph, down to the, down to the marsh and starts dipping his wounds in saltwater. Bastard. How old is Jesse at this point? Don't even at put you point, on the spot. At this point, he's 13. Okay. Does he? Okay. Well, we'll hear the rest of the story, but man, he, he is on a tear. Yeah, and if you notice, the attacks are getting closer, and they're getting more serious. Yes. He then leaves little Joseph Kennedy laying there in the marsh crying where he's discovered a little while later. There is one one situation in mid-September of 1872. So the attack on Joseph Kennedy happened September 11th. So uh, about a week, week and a half later, there's a, there's a point where Jesse is uh, sitting outside of a— there's a young group of boys, right, sitting there— talking the shit. They're in a circle. These attacks are going on. It's the mm-hmm. talk of the town. Jesse's sitting on the outside like the outsider that he was, Indian style, stabbing his knife into the ground. What? That's what Jesse does. Yeah. Thing. As these boys are talking, uh, one of the boys, 15-year-old boy by the name of Ollie Whitman, begins boasting that he escaped the boy torturer just a few days earlier by fighting the boy off and then running. Big mistake. Big mistake yes. saying that, man. Now, Jesse's 13 at the time. This boy is 15. This boy is also bigger than Jesse. Okay. But Jesse obviously knows this is a lie because he is the boy torturer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. At one point, 15-year-old uh, Ollie Whitman looks over and sees Jesse sitting there, Indian style, cross-legged, just staring at him, and he's got a smirk on his face, like almost like he's getting a kick out of it. Yeah. Uh, Jesse sees all the other boys are impressed. Obviously, Jesse is not because he knows that a lie. But when Ollie sees Jesse smirking, Smirking at him, he says, quote, what are you smiling about, you little white-eyed freak? Unquote. <laughs> Jesse then just continues to smile, shakes his head, and walks away. Stands up and walks away. Yeah. The thing about any, well, killer, serial killer, from what I've learned, is like they, they really don't like anybody else taking credit for what they've done. But this is a, a unique situation in which a victim is taking credit for being a victim and hasn't gone through it. So I yeah, imagine is, in, in the mind... Is- <laughs> <laughs> like a little 1800s version of Jussie Smollett. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is. Is he going to pay for this, Ollie? No, no. It's too big, eh? Too big. Yeah, too big. But the next kid probably pays for it, though. You know, I've been staring. So I want to take a, a moment here and 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 explain Jesse's demeanor, right? right? Because I've been head and shoulders deep in this case for a month now. I've lived and breathed it. I've read yeah. everything on it. I've watched all the documentaries, read all the old newspapers. Um, I've been staring into this kid's <laughs> eyes for a month. And I have i don't know why, man, but in all the cases that we've covered on TCK, this is one where I found myself, I'd pull up the picture of him when he was a kid yeah. and stare at it for like 10, 15 minutes at a time. Because just looking at his face, you can almost immediately determine what his demeanor was and it was later confirmed reading about people that had interactions with him yeah um, jesse was not a loud braggadocious type he was more of the uh I, I almost can imagine seeing jesse sitting there stabbing this knife into the ground and listening to this older kid brag about escaping and jesse's just grinning mm-hmm. and and listening right mm-hmm. and he's not even offended he's just more interested amused amused he's amused yeah I picture the same thing. 
And I know exactly. I'll let you continue, but I know exactly what you're talking about because often when you're when you're working on a case or whatever, working on a story based on on a, on a killer or whatever, all you have in many, especially these old ones, is just a picture of their face. And uh, yeah, you try to get into their head just based on, on on that photo, and you can get a lot. You really can get a lot from it. Um, it's 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 kind of weird to say, but it, you almost develop this strange psychic uh, connection with it like when i'm when i'm writing i feel it flowing through me at times i'm sure you understand this as well by this point too right like you just kind of feel especially when you're talking right now about it like you you've gotten to know them in your own way you don't know them truly but no, you've got to know you got to know them in your own way and you're probably pretty close somehow yeah i don't think jesse ever at least in his childhood tried to draw attention to himself but i also don't think he was weak he mm-hmm. wasn't some would call it, I guess, stoic. Right. Right. Yeah. Sure. Always listening to everything. Yeah. Always having his opinions about things, but never expressing them. Just kind of grinning, smiling, and shaking his head and walking off. Like, yeah, it's not worth it. Uh, sure, sure. And he wouldn't be pathetic and weak at this point, as, as you might think, like a kid, as we described. I mean, you becoming, I assume, that you become empowered by the acts you've committed in the past, and you know that you're different. They're not, I mean, you feel like you're more, I'm sure that a kid like that, a, a person who kills people and all that, like I think about like a Gary Ridgeway just going to work in the paint shop or wherever he was at and looking at everybody. It's like, you fucking assholes just doing the same thing day in, day out. And I'm out there hunting people. And, and you feel like you're, you're almost like a supernatural being like you're, you're a God in some ways. Uh, also it's important to point out, we never talked about his, his um, intellectual prowess. He, he wasn't an idiot. Very intelligent. Right. He hated school. He didn't do bad in school. Right. He was a good student. Very intelligent. Also, if I've painted Jesse as a weakling, I'm sorry, because that's also polar opposite to the, to the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people talk about how large his hands were and how strong he was. Okay. He was a very strong 13-year-old. That is good to know, actually, because I did not picture that. Very strong, uh, big hands, and also intelligent. That's, so. Mm. Surprised he wasn't able to cut that dick all the way off then, you know? Yeah, well, you know, what I believe <laughs> happened. <laughs> Let's get back to the dick cutting. So of what children. I believe. Of children. Right. I think he was interrupted. Okay, I think yeah, he heard yeah. something that spooked him, something along the lines, and he ran off. Because that does happen here in a minute. In okay. the middle of one of his attacks. That would make sense. Because that didn't make sense to me, especially now knowing his hands are so big. I don't really want to talk too much more about that. I, I kind of cut you off there if you wanted to continue talking about No, you're about, fine, man. Yeah, like he had large hands. Uh, by the age of 13, how tall would you figure? He would be bigger he than most kids? He was an average kids? hot kid. Okay. All right. He was an average hot kid, uh, but very strong for his tough. age. Tough. Probably yeah, super tough. tough because of the beatings, the beatings he had taken and all that, yeah, too. Yeah, and the fact that he loved the beatings. Yeah, yeah. So even if this 15-year-old Ollie Whitman had chosen to to physically attack him, Jesse would have loved that. Right. Oh, he could, God. Oh, my God. He could, he can't put half the whipping his dad put on him. No, Yeah. Jeez. No, this is just boner time. He's wearing eight layers of 1800s clothing. Because clothing. <laughs> they all fucking did that. For what, why do they wear so many clothes? Uh, they go to the post office. They got seven jackets on, four shirts. Yeah. Nine pairs of pants. <laughs> Maybe so no one steals them. Three hats. Yeah. <laughs> Three hats. Yeah. <laughs> piled on top of each other. You can tell the poor people because they wear all their clothes. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So six days later, after the Joseph Kennedy attack, so it's less than a week now in between attacks. Six days later, on September 17th, a little five-year-old boy by the name of Robert Gould is playing near his house when Jesse Pomeroy approaches him and asks him if he wants to, quote, you want to go see some soldiers marching in a parade? <laughs> Unquote. Because it's the Civil War, right? The Union. Oh, yeah. The, so this is a Union state. So uh, little Robert Gould, he had a bunch of little uh, tin soldiers. Loved the soldiers. Maybe even this is never uh, reported in any of the old magazines or anything. But uh, it, they did say he loved tin soldiers. So maybe the reason Jesse knew to use this bait was maybe he was playing with little toy soldiers out there sure. and he mm -hmm. saw that mm -hmm. so yeah jesse offers to let he says hey some of the the civil war soldiers are marching in a parade you want to go watch obviously robert having loving toy soldiers agrees and begins following jesse pomeroy along the railroad tracks so he's leading him down these railroad tracks once they once they reach a remote stretch of tracks along hartford and erie line in south boston jesse attacks so they get into the into the woods there into a wooded desolate area on the tracks jesse shoves the kid off to the side of the tracks strips him this is standard now yeah ties him to a telegraph pole beside the tracks mm. which is basically an 1800s version of a of a telephone pole yeah what they used to send telegraphs right. ties him to a telegraph pole and this time though he pulls out two knives he's got his trusty pocket knife in one hand and a much larger knife on the other hand with a fixed blade then he begins doing his Jesse dance, dancing around, hooting and hollering, and begins screaming cuss words and slashing animalistically at the boy's face and head. Yeah. He cuts him under his eyes. He cuts him behind his ears. He cuts his scalp. He cuts his shoulders, the back of his neck, the front of his neck, his chin, his cheeks, and his nose. So this boy is mauled, basically. He looks like he's been attacked by a bear. He then stops puts the blade of the bigger knife to the boy's throat and whispers in his ear, quote, You will never see your mother and father anymore, you stinking little bastard. I'm going to kill you. Unquote. At that moment, Jesse... <laughs> I mean, I'm just kind of desensitized at this point, you know? But continue, yeah. You're not going to get any, uh, oh, no's from me. You're going to get laughter, I guess. There's going to be plenty of oh no's in the reviews after this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At that moment, Jesse looks down the train tracks right before he's getting ready to cut this kid's throat. And uh, the little boy, this one survives too. Uh, little Robert Gold survives this. But he says that at that moment, Jesse turns his head, looks down the tracks, and then mutters, shit. Then drops the big knife and runs off into the weeds and trees. Uh, it turns out that he had looked down the tracks and saw three railroad workers walking down the tracks talking. Yeah. Uh, and they saved this little boy's life without even knowing it because this would have been Jesse's first murder. Oh, um, wow. These three railroad workers, they walk up on the on this kid, obviously horrified. Take to take to raping him. <laughs> they rape him, yes. And it ended up being their first murder. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, they take him to the police, the railroad workers do, and uh, the police... The boy tells the police that the boy that attacked him had an eye that looked like a white marble. Oh, man. And this is the first big lead yep. that the cops get. Because it really drastically narrows down the search. Can you imagine making a joke like those railway workers raped this boy tied to a pole 
in other any other case than like an old case like this. I would never say that if this happened in 2015. Absolutely not. I wouldn't say it if it lasted, <laughs> happened in the last 50 years. No. I don't know why. It's These just, are still human beings are they? with feelings oh. and ambitions and parents and I, children. <laughs> I think I need to be reminded about that. Okay. I think I'm back. All right. All right. Real human beings. Check. So the little boy tells the police, hey, the, the, the kid that attacked me had an eye that looked like a white marble. And that's a pretty distinguishing characteristic. Yeah, that's like is. that narrows the search down drastically. Actually, you know, now that I say that, I don't know if it does. This is 1870. <laughs> <laughs> does it really? It's 1872. <laughs> that's probably half the kids are yeah. blind in one eye. <laughs> right. Yeah. From one mishap or another. Jesse still hasn't killed anybody at this point. The police, though, do they do have a description, a brown-headed kid with one white eye. And at this point, police officer Bragdon of, the, of Station 6 begins going around to the schools in the area with seven-year-old Joseph Kennedy and looking for the boy that attacked him. So what they're doing is they wait for school to start. They, go, they pick a school each day. They take Joseph in and, like, methodically, room by room, they have Joseph walk into these classrooms and see every single kid trying to find the one that's doing all these attacks. And on Friday, September 20th, 1872, Jesse's school is next on the list. Hmm. Now, when Officer Bragdon and little Joseph Kennedy enter Jesse's classroom, Jesse's sitting there at his desk, he immediately notices Joseph and he figures what's going on here. So Jesse stares at his desk, keeps his head down so they can't see his eye mm -hmm. when they enter the classroom. At one point, his teacher says, Joseph or Jesse, raise your head. But when he raises his head, he keeps his eyes down. And somehow little Joseph Kennedy doesn't notice him. And uh. Uh, he does avoid detection. I had a situation like this. I threw a marble, like a, they called them Kongs back then. It was a big marble. I threw it through a window of the school after school, and they came into the classroom. And I, as you were describing that scene, I remember them coming in and asking and looking. I assume they were looking for guilt and me just kind of trying to like act casual. Obviously, Pomeroy is a lot. I passed. Yeah, that's a sign of a sociopath. <laughs> you could probably pass a lot of detector test. Too. They'd ask you could. about it because it's not a lie if you believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. I might be able to. <laughs> I keep forgetting that we're not on brutal, too. Like, this is a publicly yeah, it's available. Weird. It's a weird dynamic because it does feel like brutal because I'm usually talking to the operator. So I'm trying to dial back the, uh, the, horrendousness, of the, the horrendousness of the jokes that I'm making. Right. Right. And uh, a normal TCK listeners right now that, that haven't listened to brutal are thinking, Kent's really being insensitive right now and it turns out i've always been like that you just haven't listened to brutal <laughs> you're actually holding back a bit i'm like what's wrong with kent today should have really gone at that kid with his dick half cut off right where are you no <laughs> you you went with it so jesse keeps his head down he avoids detection officer bragdon and little joseph kennedy they leave they leave the classroom this is probably getting ready to be on jesse's part the dumbest part of this entire story and we don't know why to this day he did he does this. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was wanting to play a cat and mouse game. Maybe he was so intrigued by what Joseph Kennedy was doing by the police. But on his way home from school, that same day that the officer and Joseph Kennedy show up in his classroom, he stops by the police department at Station 6 and peeks his head in. Uh. Joseph Kennedy's sitting there on a bench out front. And the second Jesse's head comes into the police department, Jesse turns and they're staring at each other. <laughs> Joseph Kennedy notices Jesse right away, obviously, 
when he sees the white eye and screams into the police station, that's the boy. Jesse turns and begins to run, but he is chased down by police marshal Drury and caught less than a block away. Classic. uh, Well, not classic. Arrogance. Uh, Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, a lot of of criminals will return to the scene of the crime or they'll come to see, you know, a a crime scene when everybody's piled around it. He couldn't help himself. He had to go take a look and see what was up. Screwed himself. Curiosity got the best of him. Mm -hmm. Curiosity killed the bass, as they say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Jesse's caught by Marshall Drury uh, and brought back to the police station six and locked up. And that's when the officers begin questioning. He doesn't crack. They eventually let him let him go to his cell. He passes out asleep on his on his rack there. And at midnight, they shake him awake. They want him like jolted awake, right? Disheveled, confused. And they start questioning him again at midnight. They tell him he's going to spend 100 years in jail if he doesn't admit to the crimes. And at 1230 a.m. on September 21st, so that night, Jesse Jesse does finally confess and admits that he is what the newspapers were calling the boy torturer. Mm. Later that morning, all the victims so far are brought to the jail, and every single one of them confirmed that he's the one that attacked them. And this is a real... You remember that movie Problem Child? Yes. With a redheaded kid? I like John it. Ritter? Sure, I watched all three. W- weren't there like three of them? There uh, was. This yeah. is a real Problem Child. Dennis the Menace I mix up with that one, but yes, Problem Child I do remember. Imagine if... the. <laughs> Imagine if this is what Dennis the Menace was really like. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody loved the movie. <laughs> Made by Disney. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually based on the boy torturer. Mr. Wilson trying to befriend this boy torturer. <laughs> <laughs> he hangs him by the rafters and beats the shit out of him every time he steps on his lawn. <laughs> Mr. Wilson's a pedophile in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that Jesse Pomeroy just needed John Ritter to show him what real love is. Right? (laughs) 12-year-old Jesse Pomeroy. Uh, Law worked a lot quicker back then. There wasn't all this bullshit that we have now where it takes 12 years to try a case. Right, right. Almost the same day, uh, he gets convicted very quickly and is sent within 24 hours of being caught. It's sitting his happy little ass in the State Reform School for Boys in Westboro, Massachusetts. Within 24 hours, <laughs> caught, <laughs> sentenced at the Reform School in Westboro. See you later. He's sentenced to, he's 12 years old at the time. He's sentenced to stay there until he's 18 years old. So he's got right. six year sentence. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're wondering, Jack, what is a day like at Westboro? Wasn't. Hey, uh, right here, do you care to go? Hey, Kent, what was a day like at Westboro? Hey, Kent, what was a day like, you figure, in Westboro there? Oh, God, I'm so glad you asked, Jack. Thankfully. (laughs) Thankfully, one of the schedules from Westboro survived, despite the fact that its doors permanently closed in 1884. So this place hasn't existed in about 140 years. All right. At 5 a.m., it was wake up time. All the kids woke up. They made their beds, and they were to wash up in a communal in a communal bathroom. Five thirty from seven thirty a.m. is morning classes. So for the next two hours, they do morning classes, history, science, blah 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 blah. After those morning classes, from seven thirty to eight a.m., it was breakfast, and that breakfast always consisted of bread and coffee. For and the that's kids. what you need to shove down a bunch <laughs> of high, ener- high energy 
like dangerous children is psychopaths. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at 8 a.m., it was heroin hour. <laughs> After uh, breakfast of bread and coffee at 8 a.m., the work whistle blows. And that's when all the boys are to go to their various jobs throughout the campus there at Westboro. Uh, there was a chair shop. There was a shoe shop. There was a sewing room. There was a laundry, a kitchen, and there was a farmhouse. And they had various jobs. Uh, but from 8 a.m. to noon that day was work. And there was a 15-minute break at 1030. From noon to 1230 was lunch. Uh, and this was a lunch schedule. Mush on Monday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. I love mush. <laughs> Hash on Tuesday. That's the same thing. Is it? <laughs> well, it's just a bunch of shit pushed together, right? Yeah. Just a mountain Potatoes of what looks and... like dog food. Yeah. yeah. Beans on Wednesday. Fish chowder on Thursday. <laughs> Meat soup on Friday. Beans again on Saturday. And then leftovers from the week on Sunday. That's uh, that's a rough schedule right there. You, I assume that the beans are to help them shit, so you give it to them every three days. I don't days. think, looking at this menu, none of them had issues shitting. <laughs> right, every menu, everything in the menu makes you have diarrhea, I would say the issue for sure. was not shitting. <laughs> right. <laughs> they should have had, like, uh, what was that, milk bottle cork in your ass Wednesdays? Yeah, yeah. On top of that, they're throwing coffee. <laughs> Into the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the so lunch was from noon to twelve thirty. Then from twelve thirty to one o'clock was recreation. So they had thirty minutes of recreation time, which meant for Jesse sitting Indian style in the in the yard and shoving something into the ground, pretending it was <laughs> an innocent human. A knife. Yeah. They were going to be back at work at one, where they worked until four thirty. So for the next three and a half hours, they were at their workstation, and then from four thirty p.m. to five thirty was afternoon classes. So one hour of or yeah, one hour of classes. Five thirty to six thirty was clean up. So they were to get cleaned up for dinner. And then from six thirty to seven, that next thirty minutes was a dinner of again bread and coffee. So dinner was the same as breakfast. Oh, let's have some coffee right before bed. Yeah. Yep. Seven to seven forty five was what they called playtime. Because a lot of these kids were young. Right. Jesse was young. He was thirteen at the time. Twelve, thirteen. Yes. Yeah, so so playtime. Yeah. And then lots lots were out at 7.45 p.m. So bedtime <laughs> at 7.40, lots go out. Everybody in their bed. All right. Now, Jesse does know that he'll get out early if he behaves, and he's not an idiot. So he immediately becomes a model inmate. Some few oddities here about Jesse's stay in reform school. He does often ask the other kids there for the details about their crimes. He loves it mm-hmm. when they're violent, gruesome, and bad. Uh, but they so rarely are. He was kind of one of a kind there. <laughs> He was yeah. a monster there. The other kids <laughs> He's a fucking, terrified of him. He, he shouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah. uh, he should have he been assassinated, right? This is right? no I joke. Mean, 95% of the kids there were there for petty shit, <laughs> shit like shoplifting. And a lot of them, a huge, a huge amount of them were there for shit like they were committed by their parents for being, quote, stubborn. <laughs> They're with a a monster, <laughs> an absolute monster. Did did he did he get any of these kids there? I guess you'll get to it, but uh, you'd assume that maybe he would he would give it a go. At this right? point, he's trying to get out. He wants free. Okay. Oh, right. So he's model. He's a model inmate. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. 
Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. He's smart. Smart, like he said, because if he did that, then he'd be there forever. So he wants to get back out and continue. He also doesn't mind it here because the kids are leaving him alone. He's notorious. He's a famous inmate mm-hmm. at this reform school by this point. Um, right. The new, newspaper called yeah. him the boy fiend and the boy torturer. So uh, they were afraid of him. Everybody was scared of Jesse. Yeah. And he kind of liked that. Yeah, he might like the discipline that he's getting there, too. He hasn't, well, no, wait a minute. He was disciplined a fair amount, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. He got plenty of discipline in his life. Before he went in there, too. That big mouth, (laughs) Billy Bass, was pinned to the wall on more than one occasion. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when when one of the boys was punished, floggings were common here at this reform school. This is the 1800s. They would take them down to the basement and flog them. Uh, Jesse would always pull the kid aside that had been flogged and ask in detail about it. He wanted them to describe yeah. it. He, he wanted to know how bad it hurt, where they hit them at. And then at nighttime, he would lay in his cot and climax while he was thinking about it. Uh, I hate to say it, but it reminds me of my son. <laughs> like, no, no. <laughs> well, he's young. They're whippersnappers. <laughs> no, but he always needs me to like tell me all the details about that. Like something that fascinates him, tell me all that. Like break it right down. If if I don't like somebody, he's like, "What is it all about that person that you don't like?" Like he really wants to hear all about that, right? You know what Does that guy, means, though. Well, that means that your son, when he gets older, all jokes aside, yeah, yeah. he's going to be an excellent conversationist. Yeah, he's he, or a, or a killer of men and women, or um, yeah, a and boy children. Fiend. On one occasion. One standout moment of Jesse's time here at this reform school, one of his teachers, a woman by the name of Miss Laura Clark, said that she came across the black snake in the garden one time. And she ran up to Jesse, who was sitting by himself, enjoying his break, and asked if he would kill it. She distinctly remembered that when she asked that, his eyes, like, like they turned on. Mm-hmm. He got he gets super excited and had her show him where the snake was. He grabbed a stick on the way and followed her to the snake. When he found it, she said that he started hitting it with the stick over and over and over, and he worked himself into a frenzy. He beat it so often, so hard, and so many times that when she was, she forced him to stop. And by the way, she made him stop. She grabbed him by the shoulders, she said, and shook him while looking into his eyes and said there was nothing in his eyes when this happened. It was yeah. like he, he reset. Right, right. But she said by the time she made him stop, the snake was literally a pulp. Jeez. Yeah. Did everything he could to it. Gave it everything. Now, while Jesse's in this reform school, his mom is on the outside, being the dumbass that she is, fighting very hard to get him out. She consistently claims, and will so till her dying day, that her boy didn't do anything wrong. She said that he was too young to do crimes that horrible. She wrote letters to uh, to governors, to 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 politicians, she petitioned, and his mother's and between his mother's persistence and his good behavior, it all eventually pays off. And on February sixteenth, eighteen seventy four, after just a year and a half in this reform school, they let him out on the condition that he works with his brother Charles on the paper route and works with his mom in her dress shop. Nothing more dangerous. I mean, it reminds me of a few serial killers. I can't think of them off the top of my head. I was thinking Ed Kemper for a second, but I don't think that's correct. Then like a psychopath paired with an enabler, you know, like uh, an apologizer for you. Somebody that kind of keeps you boosted. Yeah. I don't think that a Kemper was the correct uh, <laughs> guy. I think that was the worst comparison because his mom 
Nobody hated Ed Kemper more than his mother. The only way she boosted him was his hatred for her fueled his murders. It's the exact opposite of what I was looking for. So Jesse's 14 years old now. He's uh he's out. He's working, he's helping his brother with a paper route. He's working with his mom in the dress shop. And on March 18th, 1874, just six weeks, Jack, after getting out of reform school, it is now March 18th, 1874. It is 7 30 a.m., 7.30 in the morning. Jesse and his brother took turns opening his mother's dress store. And it, this morning, it's Jesse's turn. Right. Jesse gets there at the dress store. He's the first to arrive. And uh, it is 7.30 in the morning, and he begins to prepare for the workday. And that consists of stocking the coal for the burning stove that keeps the store warm. He sweeps the store out, getting it cleaned up, getting ready for it for opening. Now, at 8.20 a.m., Jesse is standing there in his mother's store talking to another young boy named Willie Core, And that Willie Core, little Willie Core, helped him deliver newspapers. So Jesse's standing there, 8.20 a.m., talking to Willie Core. When 10-year-old Katie Curran of 377 Second Street walks in, and she's just looking for a notebook for school. Uh, we got a female here. So this is the first, first girl that's walked. All right. He's not discriminating. He's not just discriminating been, at all. It's been convenient to this point that it's been boys because he can befriend them, I'm assuming, right? So let's yes. see what happens. All right. This is going to be his first murder. Oh, good. Can't wait. Heads up. Now... Katie had already early that morning uh, visited a store called Tobin's right down the street, uh, a few hundred feet down the street, actually. And she was looking for a notebook for school, but she hadn't found one she wanted. Now, you're probably wondering, well, why the hell would she go into this dress shop looking to buy a notebook? It turns out um, I was able to find in a very old newspaper that this business that his mom had this store in also had a paper store in the front that sold notebooks, pens, paper, stationery, stuff like that. All right. So she comes in looking for a notebook. Katie starts talking to Jesse and he says, yeah, I've got a notebook. I'll sell you and I'll sell it to you for three cents. They're normally five cents, by the way. Mm-hmm. He says, I'll sell it to you for three cents and I'll sell it to you that cheap because it's got an ink stain on the front of it. And he says, hey, but it's downstairs. He will later confess during the trial that he didn't use the word seller because it was a seller that it, because he was afraid it would scare her away and she wouldn't follow him down there. OK, gotcha. Yeah. Smart kid. Smart. Yes. Manipulative, yes. When she agrees, she says, yeah, I'll take that notebook for three cents. That's a fucking good deal. <laughs> God damn, one little ink stain, three cents? Jeez. I've been paying six cents down the road. She's got a mouth on her. So Katie agrees to the three-cent deal on that notebook with the ink stain on the front of it. She thinks, that's just downstairs. Yeah, we'll go down and grab it. When <laughs> when she agrees, Jesse tells little Willie Core there that's standing out, standing there, to go out and buy some cat meat from the butcher. <laughs> <laughs> what? Cat meat. Cat- or cat food. Cat meat. That's what they call it, which Uh-oh. is cat food made from horse meat. This is the 1800s, Uh-oh. so they didn't have kibble or whatever. Sure, sure. They fed their cats just meat, and it was uh, basically the scraps and stuff. The butchers would save it at the time, and horse meat, and people would buy it for their animals. Cats, dogs, stuff like that. Wow. He pitches a few bits at uh, <laughs> at Willie Core. says, hey, run down to the store, get some cat meat. When Willie leaves, he lowers little Katie down to the basement. He says, hey, that's where the notebook is. Let's run down and get it. She reaches the bottoms of the steps with Jesse behind her. And when she reaches the flat, it's a dirt floor, by the way, looks around and realizes that she's been bamboozled. Yeah. The only thing down here is dirt, coal, and a washroom. 
called a water closet. And a jack-o'-lantern. Uh, there's definitely not a notebook down here. And behind her standing a goddamn <laughs> jack-o'-lantern. About the time she realizes she's in trouble, though, Jesse's big arm reaches around her neck. He, he reaches, he comes up behind her at the bottom of the steps, wraps his left arm around her, around her uh, mouth and eyes. So he doesn't reach around her throat. He reaches around her face. So her face is in the crook of his arm, right? Oh, uh, yep. He brings the other hand around with that pocket knife that he loves so much and slices her from ear to ear on her throat. She dies pretty quickly. She falls there, bleeds out. He then strips her clothes off and spends the next couple minutes just stabbing randomly into her stomach and her vagina. With with his uh, crisscross applesauce while he's doing that or uh, Indian's pose or whatever you were talking about. He's down on his knees beside the body. He's not doesn't have his legs crossed like how he used to stab uh, the sand and all that. No, no, he's just kind of. Once again, he gets this look in his eye, right? Because <laughs> there's only one that can get a look. Yeah, <laughs> got it. <laughs> and it's like he leaves. It's like he's possessed almost. Yeah. Um, the way the teacher described whenever she asked him to kill the snake, it was like his soul re-entered his body when he sh- when she shook him out of it. Yeah. Wow. It almost reminds me of of uh, that scene in... Have you seen the new It? Oh, yeah. You know the scene when Georgie's standing there at the Grange rate and they both laugh for a minute and Pennywise laughs? Yes. And then he, like, stops for a minute and his uh-huh. eyes just go dead. And yes. then he kind of, like, comes back. Absolutely, man. That's, That's how I it. imagine Jesse coming out of these trances that he comes into. Buddy, I do it all the time to my kids, that exact situation with the Pennywise and the drain thing, just to scare them. They'll be playing in the bedroom, and I'll kick the door open, and I'll stand there, and I'll make my eye just kind of loll in the one socket and just stare dead ahead, and they start screaming. (laughs) So because they're used to that image happening at 2 o'clock in the morning when Daddy's had a little bit too much to drink. (laughs) Time to play. Keeps calling them Georgie. None of their names are Georgie. <laughs> hey, Georgie. Hey, Georgie. <laughs> you don't have any pants on? <laughs> Holding a bottle of Jack Daniels? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> that, tears, that scares the shit out of them, man. When you're naked like yeah, that. Yeah, they hate it. <laughs> oh, just staggering in. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Nobody but you. <laughs> That's a powerful feeling. All right, so. <laughs> so he's stabbing randomly into this poor little girl's stomach. Mm-hmm. Like I said, he also stabs her her uh, genitals, her vagina, everything. Yeah. Basically hollows out her private area. He right. stabs it so many times. Jeez. Then he drags her body to the corner of this basement here behind what is called a water closet. And uh, by the way, a water closet is just 1800s term for like uh, the fetus of what eventually became showers. Okay. It was a drippy pop, really, where they would wash and everything. But it's not, it's, it's got like a bucket with an old rag in it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Kind of. Wait a minute. So (laughs) in the water closet, they used to go shower? Yeah. So it was where they would bathe, but. If you're picturing like a bathroom, that's not really accurate. It didn't have a toilet. Just a leaky pipe above their head? It was just a leaky head? pipe with a bucket and a sponge in it. 
<laughs> yeah, where you would wash up. But it was this was good living in the 1800s. You know, yeah. if you had a place inside your house where you could bathe. Yeah. yeah. Like a shower. Right. So he drags her behind the water closet mm-hmm. and uh, into the corner of the basement and then starts stacking a bunch of old coal, stones, and coal ashes on top of it. So he covers the buddy up with ashes from the fireplace because it's also down there, a big pile of ashes from the from the uh, the burner, uh, as well as old coal and stones. As he's doing this, he get, right as he gets the body covered, he hears his older brother Charles come into the store upstairs. So he very quick, Charles doesn't know he's in the basement. He very quickly washes up in the water closet real quick and then rushes up and acts like nothing happened. Goes about his day. Uh, goes to work. Katie is now missing, obviously. It becomes a huge deal in the town, and Jesse is suspected almost immediately. But because he only ever attacked boys, little boys, this is the first little girl he's ever attacked, the police aren't 100% certain. They do come to the store. They do search it lightly, but they don't find Katie's body. And uh, eventually, in the middle of this search, a guy comes forward with some false information and says that he saw Katie Curran get into a covered wagon with another man, and at this point, police assume she was kidnapped. Uh, these idiots with their false information. I never got that. I always hated it. It's in the seventies. Usually when the crimes that I've covered, these people calling in false leads. Yeah. They'll get thousands of calls and just people wanting to like insert themselves into the investigation and all that. But this, this, in this circumstance, you can imagine that maybe he did see a little girl going to a covered wagon, right? It just wasn't her. Or maybe there was, pro- <laughs> I never found out. In all the research, I don't know if there was a, a uh, an award for right. a, a reward. There was probably, I would guess, a reward, and this guy comes forward hoping he'll get a couple bits. He comes up with some a couple bits. Hey, you want yeah. some bits? Yeah. <laughs> you see the toy soldier? Yeah. Um, 10 a.m. Wednesday, April 22nd, 1874. It's 10 a.m. in the morning. It's a Wednesday, and that's when four-year-old little horse milling leaves his home at 253 Dorchester Street, which, by the way, is just a half a mile from Jesse's house, at 253 Dorchester Street to make his way to the bakery, and he's going to get, his mother has given him a little bit of money. He's going to the bakery to get him a little cake. And I know the listeners probably think at four years old, he's walking down the street on his own. This was a different mm-hmm. time. This mm-hmm. kid probably had a full-time job, three kids of his own, and a 401k not like these <laughs> pampered ass kids today with their fucking blippy. <laughs> We're off blippy. No more of that shit. Because of the shit thing? No, I don't care about that. I thought that was funny. That gave him character to me. That was very he's, funny. Yeah, he started pimping off other people that look like blippies. And he, and he's and he's so blippy is a is a kid's character on YouTube and he he wears a blue and an orange outfit cuz those colors go together and he's he's done all his research and he you, if you don't know Blippy, I wouldn't suggest even YouTubing him, but checking out, check him out. So he started doing these shows, live shows, and instead of him being there, he gets people get, and trains them to be like Blippy, like guys, dresses them up and sends them to those shows. So when these people pay all this money to go to the shows, it's not even him. Oh, that's so dirty. <laughs> Very dirty. He's a piece of shit, Blippy. But the original Blippy, he's in some hot water. Like now, not because of the shit thing still? Yeah, he got fired. Okay. The original Blippy got fired. And if you're wondering, yeah, this, so this Blippy, this kid's show, the, turns out the guy had done some comedy on the internet in his earlier days. And there's a video of him taking a big steaming shit on his yeah. buddy's gooch. 
Yeah. Uh, which is the area between your balls and your asshole. His buddy's like naked, leaned up. Did you see the video? Of the him shitting on Buddy's gooch? No, yeah, I didn't see really that. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> well, it starts to the uh, the Harlem Shake. Oh, that's right, yeah. I didn't know he got fired for that because he was continuing to, to do his videos after that had come out, but now he's been canceled in some way. Yeah, he's got canceled for the poops. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and the video is him sitting on the shitter. He's dancing. The music starts, dun, 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 the Harlem Shake. And when it goes, do the Harlem Shake, the video switches <laughs> to him standing on the toilet, bent over with his buddy naked, with his asshole in the air, and then he shits onto his buddy's asshole and the back yeah. of his balls and his chest. <laughs> and then his buddy starts throwing up. You've seen the video? Yeah, you can watch it. It's pretty funny. I don't want to. Don't send it to me. Pretty entertaining. Way entertaining than more entertaining than Blippy. <laughs> Some of his best work. <laughs> Not when he was drippy. He's taking yeah. diarrhea shits. So this little four-year-old horse mill, and he leaves 253 Dorchester Street on his way to the bakery to get a treat. And on his way to the bakery, unfortunately for him, he runs into Jesse Pomeroy. Jesse Pomeroy somehow befriends him. We don't know how to this day. Uh, but they end up going to the bakery together. Now, from this point, when they arrive at the bakery... We know about this entire exchange from the bakery until they leave this street because across the street, there was a woman named Eleanor Fosdick who was watching the entire thing from her second floor bedroom window across the street. And she later came forward and told the police the entire exchange at the bakery. She said that Jesse and Horace, they arrive at the bakery. Horace goes inside and buys a drop cake while Jesse waits outside. He, she said that he kind of stepped into a nook in the, in the buildings there. And mm -hmm. was looking up and down the street nervously, like scanning the area. She said that when Horace comes back out, she meets Jesse again on the street. She said that Horace handed Jesse the, the drop cake that he had purchased. Jesse breaks it in two pieces. Jesse eats his side of the drop cake in one single bite and then heads the other half to little Horace. <sighs> she then said that uh, Jesse then takes Horace by the hand and they head down the street away from Horace's house. Yeah. Oh, man. I got a four-year-old. I got a four-year-old. I just picture this little boy. You know, you, they, they're just so trusting at that age, man. Yeah, they don't know any better. Even nah. with his 401k. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> He's raising nine kids of his own. Horace is. <laughs> yes. Works down at the goddamn uh, the coal mines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still so innocent he gets duped by this situation, though. Yeah. And Jesse's, you know, 14 at the time, which might as well be 65. Yes, right. <laughs> so Jesse talks poor little Horace into going down to the harbor at Mar in a marshy area uh, there that is now the University of Massachusetts Boston Bayside parking lot at 200 Mount Vernon Street. So the area where what's about to happen takes place is now a massive parking lot for the University of Massachusetts. Um, and like I said, that's at 200 Mount Vernon Street. <laughs> he takes his hand and leads him down to this marshy area. It's a, uh, I, I did a little research here, by the way, a lot of uh, looking at maps of the city from this time yeah. and comparing things. Cause I was curious at how long it would take them to get from this bakery uh, to this area at 200 Mount Vernon street. And mm -hmm. uh, it was a 1.1 mile walk from 253 Dorchester street to 200 Mount Vernon street. And they would have had to have walked the old colony Avenue road, which is still there in 1874 and is there today. Uh, it would take around 25 minutes for a four-year-old and a 14-year-old to walk that far. If you add 15 minutes for the time it takes for them to grab the cake, they likely arrive at the marsh between 1045 and 11 a.m. that morning. I got to ask you, when you're doing that stuff, is there a part of you 
that wonders as you're looking at that street view or Google Maps or whatever the hell you're using and you're, you're going around that thinks that possibly you're going to see a milky-eyed jack-o'-lantern head 14-year-old holding the hand of a 4-year-old that are both eating cake? Well, uh, Jesse ate his in one bite like a... <laughs> right. Like a bass, and uh, and Horace wanted to savor his, so he's the only one eating. But there is something about I don't know how you feel when you're researching your shows for Dark Topic about taking these walks, yeah, that you know that they took, and yes. seeing things. And I always catch myself warning, like, so this place where this what is getting ready to happen to this little boy is horrible. Where it right. took where it took place is now a parking lot for a university. Yeah. Uh, how many kid? How many college students park there? Yeah. Wherever this, the exact pinpoint location where this happened is probably a parking space now, and college students park there every single day, completely unbeknownst to the fact uh, that 140 years earlier, this horrible yeah. thing happened right where they're standing. I the way I feel when I see stuff like that, you almost want to go there and stand there with a sign or just tell people, be like, "Hey, did you know? <laughs> like, yeah. have some respect." I know you're just trying to listen to your iPod. But yeah. <laughs> I know you're vaping here and just yeah. chilling, but did you know? And when I hit him with that mean thing, I take a hit <laughs> off my vape. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wet hit. <laughs> I have my vape right here. Thanks, man. Now I smoke and vape. Yeah, you know, I felt good at the time because I thought, oh, good, he's getting off cigarettes. He's going to pick this up. But it turns out I just added to your vices <laughs> instead of even taking one away. So. It takes the bad taste out of my mouth. For the we're going to get you dead sooner or later, Jack. Yeah, we're oh, fig- we're g- we'll get there. We will. <laughs> so they arrive at this place between 1045 and 11 a.m. Around this time, on the walk there, uh, a 15-year-old little boy by the name of Robert Benson, who was out there digging for clams in the marsh, he does see Jesse Pomeroy and Horace Millen walking towards the marsh. Uh, while they're walking there, gunshots are ringing out in the air. And he says that Jesse stops to him while holding little Horace Millen's hand and asks the young man, quote, watch them men shooting out on the marsh. <laughs> and uh, Robert told Jesse that they were shooting at wild ducks. They were they were duck hunting. He hasn't reached puberty yet, Jesse. No, not like yet. That. In reality, I feel like Jesse probably hit puberty at like nine years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Robert Benson, though, is the last person that isn't a psychopath that will see Horace Millen alive. Nice. Well put. Once there, he gets to a clearing there in the marsh where he feels like nobody will see him. He immediately attacks little Horace. He knocks Horace on the ground, and while Horace is on his back, Jesse runs up and sits on the little boy's stomach. So Jesse's on his knees straddling the little boy, and he immediately begins stabbing him in his chest, the chest around his heart area. He stabs him in in and around his heart 18 times. While Jesse is is brutally attacking this little boy, this four-year-old little boy, the little boy is trying to cover his chest, and the fist and the police do during the autopsy find tons of defensive wounds on the back of his hands and the inside of his palms, where he was trying to stop this barrage of slashes. Okay. After the kid stops fighting, so he his hands go limp and drop to his side. He reaches down and cuts the boy's throat from ear to ear and hits his jugular. This is the wound that does kill Horace, but Jesse isn't done yet. Because he then tries that he takes the pocket knife, pushes the the uh, the tip of the knife in between the eye and the eye socket in the corner next to his nose, pushes the knife down into the socket between the eye and the nose, and tries to pry the eye out of the head. Mm-hmm. 
which is interesting from a from a psychology. I'm not a fucking psychiatrist, and I'm not going to try to pretend like I am. I hate it right. when podcasts do that. Yeah, but I'm to not think try. that J- Jesse has this uh, deformity, this physical uh-huh. sure. difference, could be. What's going on mentally here? Trying yeah. to get the eyes out. Yeah, in this moment, I'm just happy the kid's kid's dead by this point. I know there's a little bit more to this, but you know, anytime that you're, yeah, like you're saying the psychology of that, possibly with his eye, but. <clears throat> Whenever I'm like telling a story like this myself, I I would not do it with this case because it's a child. But I picture it on my own mind as I'm hearing it. He, he's he's befriended this little boy, and the boy obviously trusts him. He's holding his hand. He's walking around with him. They spent some time together. They've shared cake. And the moment he starts to stab him in the chest, the things that I think about, and this is terrible. I hate to make a terrible situation even worse by talking about this, but I'll do it. Is like the the sounds. And the thoughts in the kid's mind and the the betrayal. Confusion. Yeah. What is happening? (laughs) Yeah. So so terrible. But thankfully, what you're talking about right now is uh, post-mortem. And to add to the sounds, this was a uh, later. (laughs) Come on, man. (laughs) Later, it's important to point out that the area where he attacked him at was a marshy area, muddy. Yeah. So there's a lot of mud and water. There, there's probably, I don't know, a, a half an inch of water where he's laying on him. Jesse himself was very muddy when he left the marshes, knee, mud on his knees, his boots. To kind of finish off this attack, he also tries to cut off uh, little Horace Millen's penis as well, but he cuts it halfway off. And one almost wonders if it's halfway cutting off thing that he enjoys because Maybe. he wasn't interrupted this time. Right. But he does halfway cut off Horace's uh, genitals. Maybe it's it's, uh, nostalgia, you know, from the previous time when he almost did it, too. It's just like it's it's just similar to the previous crime. Maybe it's an exercise in restraint. (laughs) I don't think so. No. (laughs) In an olive branch. (laughs) To Jesse at this point. (laughs) Looking up for him. (laughs) I don't want to be a dick. (laughs) You wouldn't want to, especially in this situation. The family is horrible. The uh, the family of Horace Millen obviously begins to worry when he doesn't refer- return from the bakery, and they go out looking for him. At 2 p.m., a little over an hour, hour and a half, two hours after the attack, Jesse Pomeroy does show up at his dad's work, and he gets money from him to go get something to eat at Congress Street Dining Room. Um, later, his dad will testify, yes, he did show up at 2 p.m. there. He got money like he did every day. This is a common thing. Jesse would go at 2 p.m., get money from his dad to get dinner or lunch. Mm-hmm. And he Jesse went and ate at the Congress Street dining room. He seemed completely normal, according to his dad. Nothing different, nothing out of the way. At 3.45 p.m., so an hour and 45 minutes after Jesse shows up at his dad's work, two brothers were there in the marsh area digging for clams between Washington Village and Savin Hill in Dorchester when the older brother, a 13-year-old little boy, who was described in newspapers as being, quote, deaf and dumb. And that was according to the 1874 Boston Evening Transcript. So a, a little deaf and dumb boy. This little right. fucking idiot. <laughs> I, like, I like how you disguise like your in-depth research with jokes too, man. Because this, this is really deep research. This is my first time being on True Crime Kent. I said, I don't know if you cut the part. You, you will cut the part where I said this. But, man, this is deep research. And it is grueling being on this side. I'm sure it is for you doing the research too. But uh, I got I to gotta just tell you that, that um, um, I, I think that 
I'm, I'm sure people appreciate your research, but when we call you like a true crime historian, like this, this is very deep research that you're disguising a lot of it with, uh, with your sense of humor and all that. I know what you're doing here and, and, uh, I respect I'm so it. terrified of being ag- arrogant. Yeah. That I right. try to cover up my work. My, <laughs> yeah, I know you myself. do. You do. You do. I just wanted to, to recognize it for a second. <laughs> now back to the cutting off the dicks and all that other stuff. These two brothers, they're digging for clams here in the marsh. And the 13-year-old deaf and dumb boy uh, by the name of James Powers stumbles upon the body of Horace Millen, four, the four-year-old little. And he's been dead at this point for about three and a half to, to four hours. Mm-hmm. And it just, I mean, it just scared the dickens out of that little mom. <laughs> um, the deaf, dumb boy? Right. Out of that deaf, dumb boy. And he and he ran into town. Now, he doesn't speak, and he's deaf, right? He yep. ran into town to find a police officer, and he does eventually come across the officer lines. And he just starts sign-languaging his little fucking fingers off. According to the paper, they were going like a million miles an hour. Oh, no, 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 no. There's one thing I've learned. You do not go after the deaf, deaf, dumb community. You don't want to call them that either. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I don't know why everybody's getting mad, because they're definitely not listening to the podcast. <laughs> they get really mad, man. Show me one deaf person that has listened to a podcast ever. Please. Why are you so angry? <laughs> oh, man. So he's, ha- he's, sil- he's like freaking out. Obviously, he's just seen a horrible sight. He's 13 years old. And this officer's like, fuck off. Right, <laughs> like, but finally, uh, little James Powers here gets the officer's attention, and uh, the officer does follow James Power to the place where the body lay, and it is there, a horrible sight. Officer Lines picks the corpse up, and then carries it to the railroad station nearby for an examination. Yeah, forensics wasn't necessarily in its prime in 1874. Uh, a cop's <laughs> first instinct would be, "I better pick this up and carry it a half a mile." Right. Yeah, yeah. Screw with the whole site, yeah, and just the whole fuck, fuck everything up. Maybe I did it. Who knows? Stomping all over the mud, <laughs> you know, around the body. Yeah. <laughs> from from that uh, from that railroad station, the the body of little Horace went to police station nine, and uh, at nine p.m. that night, the body is identified as four year old Horace Millen. By his mother, his poor mother, uh, oh she, saw, she identified the corpse, and she fainted uh, upon seeing the body. Oh, my God. He mutilated it afterwards, and she had to be the one to look at it? Yeah. Damn, horrible. man. Now, obviously, the police are pretty privy to the fact that Jesse is loose, and this is now a young boy that's killed. This is his standard procedure. They immediately go back to assuming it's Jesse Pomeroy. A little after midnight on April 23rd, so just after 12 hours after committing the crime, police officer Captain Dyer shows up at Jesse's house and greets Jesse Pomeroy at his mother's door with, quote, I fear we have evidence against you, which will be rather damaging. And on hearing this, Jesse Pomeroy says, quote, oh, you can't prove anything. Unquote. <laughs> you're using the voice of like uh, Chucky from Child's Play. I think I'm, maybe that's what you're doing, right? I think it's kind of just a scary voice. <laughs> it's not scary. It's scary voice. I think it's just a really well done scary voice, actually, Jack. Just a scary voice. <laughs> it's my stock scary voice. But saying you can't prove anything is, you know, we've been saying at times how bright he is. It's like. 
you know, can't prove any what. What are you talking about? You know, uh, also super uh, stupid because he left a plethora of footprints around there. <laughs> and uh, as stupid as the police were there in terms of forensics, the fact that they just picked the body up without, a, you know, checking out anything and mm-hmm. hauled it to the station. They were smart enough to take plaster casts of the footprints around the body. All right. Uh, so keep that in mind. Yeah. But the police do pick Jesse up there at his home, and they take him to the Charles Street Jail at 215 Charles Street. Once at the station, they begin questioning him. He denies everything, naturally. But he he couldn't account for large parts of his day. By the way, he also had large scratch marks on his face because as he was sitting on little Horace Millen's chest and stomach, stabbing him, Horace was also reaching up and scratching at his face. Jeez. It gives you insight. As to, like, you know, you say he's got stabbed 18 times. In my mind, you're, I was hoping, you know, like the first one got him, the second one or the third. But, I mean, clearly, the stabs don't kill you right away, even right through the heart. No. And you could fight all the way through it. For up to keep... a minute, minute and a half. Yeah, man. I mean, it's not quick. It's not, not like quick. the movies. No. No. And this little boy, four years old, fighting for his life like a, like a, like a quartered cat, right? clawing at him. So, yeah, I mean, it's terrible. It's horrible. And it's going to get worse because, uh, like I said, he denies having anything to do with it. He couldn't account for large parts of his day. He has the large scratch marks on his face. He says he, and when they ask him about the scratch marks, which, by the way, pretty obvious what they are. Right. He claims he did it while he was shaving. (laughs) He's 14 years old. (laughs) Police notice, they also take notice that he has marsh grass and mud on his shoes. His Mm -hmm. flannel shirt that he's wearing has reddish-brown stains on it that look like blood. They ask him if he has a knife, and he says he does, but it's at home in in uh, the pocket of his shirt that he was wearing. They go back. The police go and fetch it. Turns out it was a white folding knife with two blades on it, and when they investigate the knife, they see that it has dried blood on it. That night, they take Jesse's shoes, his boots, that was boots, and compare them to the plaster cast that had been taken around Horace Millen. And it's a perfect match. The shoes are. At 2 a.m., Jesse is put into his cell. And it's there he curls up on a bunk. And it's and the police noted that he quickly fell into a very untroubled and deep sleep. Completely yeah. unbothered by everything. Even unbothered by the fact that he's nailed to the wall at this point. Right. Like a Bill, big mouth Billy Bass. Yeah. <laughs> Return to Sunday. No. <laughs> We got a new song now. Uh, that's the song that I want to die to when I get in the car crash. Actually, I'm all mixed up. Uh, you know? Fitty you know, song. Yeah. The Lord yeah. sent you down here, and I'm headed home. Right. I think we talked about that on a brutal one time. Yeah, we did, I believe. Mm-hmm. Driving down the road and trying to loosen your load. And you just... Address unknown. Do-do-do-do-do-boom. <laughs> Return to send <laughs> I always just wonder about the song that, for those who didn't hear that episode, the song that we'll be playing on the radio when you get in that head on. I want, I, I that's why I play Return to Center on repeat and ride the middle line. <laughs> Jesse's asleep now in his cell, sleeping peacefully, unbothered by everything. So on April 23rd, the day after the murder, at noon, an officer by the name of Detective Woods, he goes in to the cell and takes Jesse to the funeral parlor to make him look at the body of Horace Millen. So Horace has oh. been dead for a day at this time. This is the first time and the last time, honestly, that we see any kind of humanity in Jesse 
Harding Pomeroy whatsoever. He insists that he does not want to see the corpse. He does not. Okay. He says, I do not. You cannot make me. I don't. He does not want to look at the corpse. But they make him. And when faced with the corpse of Horace Millen, they pull the, they pull the sheet back. Detective Wood says, do you know that boy? Uh, Jesse begins trembling and crying. And he says, quote, <laughs> yes, sir. But I don't want to look at him anymore. Unquote. And Woods says, quote, did you kill him? Unquote. And Jesse responds with, quote, I suppose I did. Unquote. Woods says, quote, well, how did you get the blood off of the knife then? Did you wash it off? Unquote. Jesse responds with, quote, no, sir. Just kept sticking it in the mud. And unquote. Uh, I'm laughing at this scene. The side of the corpse breaks Jesse Pomeroy, and he begins to sob uncontrollably, and then he says, quote, I'm sorry I did it. Please don't tell my mother. Unquote. Uh, and I got news for you. They're going to have to let her know. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to be able to brush this one under the rug. Mm-mm. No. When Jesse meets with attorneys, this is what's really gross. Because okay. when Jesse meets with attorneys, they do what lawyers do. Fucking snakes. Worst people mm-hmm. in the world. He immediately recants his confessions. Because they tell him he needs to recant. And he is, regardless, indicted for first degree murder. First degree murder at this time, in the, in the late 1800s, 1874, is immediately a sentence of hanging. To you are dead by the neck. But his age was an issue, though. It was a very big deal because they never encountered anything like this ever in the penal right. system. Mm-hmm. Sunday, May 31st. So while Jesse's in jail, Jesse's mom, by the way, this is all reached out into the neighborhood, right? This is topic talk of the town. Yeah. On Sunday, May 31st, while Jesse's being hailed, waiting for his trial, Jesse's mom has to shut down the store because nobody is coming to it anymore. They've all kind of yeah. boycotted. Yeah, yeah, as they should. On June 24th, a few months later, uh, his mother, Ruth Ann, she sells that store to a man by the name of James Nash. And on June 25th, the next day after selling it, James Nash is cleaning out his new property when he takes note of a horrible odor coming from the basement. He assumes it has something to do with the water closet, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't think anything of, out of, about it. But Saturday, July 18th, 1874, so uh, the next month after James Nash has purchased this property, and four months after Katie Curran goes missing, so she's been dead four months at this point, decomposing in the basement. Two workers by the names of Patrick O'Connell and Charles McGinnis are brought into Jesse's mother's former business by the new owner, James Nash, to remodel it. And they had been brought in to the basement to extend it. He was wanting to extend it out, extend the storage space. And Mm -hmm. at 5 p.m. that day on Saturday, July 18th, while they were working to enlarge the basement, worker Charles McGinnis, he starts moving those rocks and ash and coal in the corner. And after he moves one of the stones, it's dark down there, dingy, not a lot of light. The decomposing head of Katie Curran becomes unlodged from the body and rolls out of the pa- out of the uh, out of the pile of rocks and rolls across the floor with the brown wavy hair still attached. I mean, I saw it coming, but I didn't see that part. Yeah, her head rolled out of the pat. That's how she was found. The head fell off and rolled across the floor. And uh, yeah, ten year old Katie Curran had been discovered. Oh, by the way, side note, Jack. That place mm-hmm. at 327 Broadway where Katie was found is now an edible arrangements building where you can buy <laughs> chocolate that looks like daffodils and shit. So that's a lot of fun. 
So we'll send some business your way there at the Edible Arrangements at 327 Broadway in Boston. Uh, that's a hell of a shout out. Uh, the where website the in the show notes. Where the a 10-year-old girl's head rolled across the basement floor. That's an Edible Arrangements at 327 Broadway in Boston. Jeez, stop it. Oh, you man. I wonder if they even know. They will now. <laughs> Oh man, Jesse's not breaking, Jack. Back, back. Oh, right, Jesse's right, not breaking. Right. So the police do something really smart here. Uh, they know the only people that Jesse cares about in his whole life are his mother and his brother, right? Mm-hmm. His his mother Ruth Ann and his brother Charles. So they arrest Ruth Ann and Charles for the murder of Katie Curran to hurt him. To 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 be like well because she's there I mean yeah yeah she's there they're like well you were there you know we're gonna arrest you they think this will make Jesse break they know that these two didn't do it they know right. it was Jesse Pomeroy but he's not he, he's recanted everything and he's not confessing to anything else at first Jesse stays strong he's like no nah, fuck him I didn't do anything I don't know anything about it but eventually uh, after a few days he does break down and confess to it so that his mother and his brother don't have to go to jail. His mother, being the fucking idiot that she was, <laughs> does back her son and and claims that the police placed the body of Katie Curran in her basement to frame Jesse. Man. When Jesse is asked why he did it, his response is, quote, I just wanted to see how she would act. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I quoted that wrong. He, mm. When Jesse is asked why he did it, he says, quote, I just wanted to see how she would act. <laughs> quote, unquote. I mean. Nailed it. Said it wrong. I don't want to be disrespectful. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'm glad that you did that properly. He murdered a 10-year-old little girl just because he wanted to see how she would fight for her life. Right. A lot of doctors yeah. are brought in to examine Jesse, and he tells them he committed the crimes openly, but he eventually recants those confessions as well. Fun side note here, Jack. Um, while he's in jail awaiting trial, a former playmate from his childhood by the name of Willie Baxter is also arrested for stealing a few bottles of whiskey from a railroad boxcar. And that friend of his from his childhood, Willie Baxter, is put in the cell a little across the hall and down from him. And Jesse and Willie begin passing notes back and forth. Many of these notes that are from Jesse to Willie still exist today. And I have one of them right here. You are not going to do that voice to this whole thing. I can't. It would hurt my throat, and I think it would be grating. You could try. <laughs> but this will give you a little view into the uh, psyche, into the mind of Jesse Pomeroy. We do not have um, Willie's note to Jesse. Those haven't been saved because what ended up happening is Willie ended up turning in all of this stuff because it was horrible what he was confessing to and everything. Right. And Jesse destroyed the notes from Willie because he thought they were bros, right? Yeah. So this is interesting, this note that I'm getting ready to read, and this is to Willie from Jesse. And I want you to listen to this. And you need to keep in mind while you're hearing this that Jesse Pomeroy, Jesse Harding Pomeroy, is on is in is getting ready to be on trial for a double murder in which the sentence is hanging until you are dead. Mm -hmm. Most people, he's 14 years old. Most people would be stressed out. Right. Not worried about anything else. So this is the this is one of the notes. From Jesse to his friend Willie Baxter, and this is where Jesse's head at head is at. Mm -hmm. Quote, friend Willie. I'm gonna try to read this dignified as people talked back in the day. Hey. 
Quote, Friend Willie, I received your note and wish you to reply to this when you can, Willie. I remember you now. Have you not changed some during the last two or three years? Now, you will please reply to the question that I wrote in my last letter of last night. You are a good-looking fellow, Willie, and look as though you could not do wrong or ever get punished. Tell me, Willie, do you get a good licking every now and then? I never used too much, but tell me if you do, and tell me the hardest whipping you ever got. <laughs> tell me all the particulars of it, Willie, and I will tell you the hardest flogging I ever got, too. Do not forget to tell me if we ought to be friends in here. We ought to tell each other everything about ourselves. Will you tell me as I ask you about the hardest whipping you got? If it hurt much. And, oh, Willie, how it was done to you. And I will tell you about the hardest whipping that I ever got. Also, tell me, Willie, all you have heard about my doing to those boys on Powder Hill and the railroad. And don't forget it. Write me a good long letter, Willie. <laughs> Jesse Pomeroy. How about the hottest weapon you ever got? <laughs> Jesse Pomeroy. That's all he's thinking about. <laughs> no matter the severity of his situation, Jesse Pomeroy is like that squirrel from Ice Age. He's mm. just chasing that nut, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He's still, all he's thinking about is he's, he's wanting this, obviously he's wanting this kid to describe these weapons that he's gotten oh, so yeah. he can jerk off to the Absolutely. Of. It's like when you, if you're, I don't know, I think a lot of people are like this. You first meet a girl when like you're younger and you're like trying to get them to tell you former sexual situations they've been in to get them talking about sex or something like that. Like to, you know, am I, the, am I alone on this? Yeah. I am not alone on this. You're trying you to get them do... to describe past sexual experiences? Yeah. I mean, I'll listen to them. They come out in natural conversation, but I'm not prying them out. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I've just heard in passing that people do this. Okay. I'm not a, I'm not a yeah, pervert myself. <laughs> but he he's he's uh, it's obviously it's, there's like a there's a sexual uh, aspect to that it feels like especially in the way that you read it but uh, he's clearly turned on by this type of thing and uh, I mean honestly it was hard to pick one but this is there's so many of these that are saved and framed yeah are the originals too in his handwriting which is something else to see to look at it's really quite it really makes all this real. Yeah. Seeing the original handwriting from the these of these jailhouse little letters from the 1800s and Jesse Pomeroy's own handwriting, but all of them have this same sense. It's him trying to pry uh, stories out of Willie so that he can jerk off. To oh, yeah. it's it's him wanting Willie to describe painful situations that he's been in <laughs> and inviting the the possibility or like it's for him to 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 write it out himself when it comes back and just ramp it all up man just just living it just just wanting to to share it so so this guy is is in this in the same jail as him he said yes. too he's just yes. right down the, so right the down. letters that he wrote and he passed down a guard had to bring them down to him I, i'm assuming so what uh whenever i was working corrections what they would do is called fishing where they would take yeah, a weight right. with a string and they would throw it 
underneath one cell into another with the note attached. I would imagine it's even easier here because it's big wrought iron cell doors, right? Yep. So I'd imagine, no, a guard was not involved. Sure. Because a lot of these letters also have confessions yeah. from Jesse to Willie. Also, it's important to point out, because this will come into play later, not much later because this is almost over, this episode is, that he's wanting Willie to talk about what he's heard about himself. Yes, what absolutely. What he's heard about. But that wasn't, um, you know, spotlighted really in this whole conversation. The the thing that he really wanted was the hardest whipping that he ever got. Yeah, because, I mean, 90% of this this note is him wanting Willie to tell in detail about the hardest whipping right. he ever got. And as a side note, i just like to know how much trouble I'm in here. But if for you what? need to write anything. No, 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 no. No, I'm saying for him, he's saying oh, to the other guy. No, like, as no, a side no, man, you read that all wrong. This isn't about him worried about how much trouble he's in. No. This is him wanting to hear his notoriety. Ah, like, tell gotcha. Me, tell me what you heard about me. What sure, have you heard? What sure, are the stories? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Also, tell me all you have heard about my doings to those boys on Powder Hill and Railroad. You're right. Yeah, no, he just wants to hear it. Mm. And he says, write me a long letter. Yeah. He wants <laughs> to be detailed. He yeah. wants the deets. Yeah. Don't forget it. So trial opens December 8th, 1874. My birthday, actually. I wasn't Uh-oh. born in 1874. I was born in 1986, but I was born on December 8th. Hmm. Uh, by the way, the Pearl Harbor happened on December 7th. That's a fun fact. Anyways, yeah. big deal in Boston. Trial opens December 8th, 1874. It's a big deal in Boston. Packed courtroom. Obviously, this is the biggest story in ages. Jesse is now 14 years old, the child murderer. Uh, the testimony was obviously gruesome and detailed. Jesse sat there bored and unfazed the entire time completely devoid of emotion, bored. Uh, And actually, when they started going into the details about the murder of four-year-old Horace Millen, it was noted that Jesse leaned back in his chair and interlaced his hands behind his neck and relaxed. It was like he was having to listen to uh, Antique Roadshow. (laughs) This is the good stuff. Turn it up. Yeah, that might have been what he was doing, actually, is bathing in the, (laughs) like, enjoying it. Right, right. The defense goes, they've got one They've got one way to take this, obviously, for the insanity plea. Witnesses are called in. Jesse's mom uh, comes in. Uh, she brings up a bunch of childhood illnesses that he has. This is also when she talks about while she was pregnant, um, mm-hmm. how much she enjoyed going to the butcher. That's how this comes out at the witness stand. Neighbors come, and they say that he witnessed Jesse hurting animals. Uh, one guy said that he would often see young Jesse holding his hands on the sides of his head and running around screaming like he was afraid his head was going to explode. (laughs) Regardless of all this, the jury deliberates for five hours and they end up finding Jesse Harding Pomeroy, who was 14 years old, guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. The mandatory sentence for that, by the way, is death by hanging. Mm -hmm. However, it was a big deal back then. Many didn't think that a 14-year-old should be executed. And Governor William Gaston of Massachusetts refused to sign off on this execution. And because he refused to sign off on this execution, it costed him re-election. <laughs> they want him dead. The guy that won, all he basically ran on the campaign that I would have killed him. Yes. yes. And he got elected. <laughs> right. But before Gaston got voted out of office, the last thing he did uh, was change the sentence from death to life in prison in solitary confinement, and that could be argued as worse than a death sentence. Can be, yep. It can be argued as that. Especially for him, when you're saying that he's bored in the courtroom, 
Uh, nothing more boring than being in solitary confinement. And this is solitary confinement, by the way, in 1876. <clears throat> yeah. You're, uh, you're trying to eat cockroaches off the floor because they yeah. might have missed your lunch. You got a dirt floor and a cot. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but in September of 1876, the now 16-year-old, this is how long the uh, everything went on. He's been in jail, so for two years, from 14. The, the trial started at 14. He was in jail actually about a year and a half. Um, the big deal was whether or not to put him to death. That was the big issue. That was the what drawed all this out. <laughs> but in September of 1876, 16-year-old Jesse Pomeroy enters Charleston State Prison to begin big boy time in solitary confinement. And like I said, he starts that solitary confinement at 16 years old. And Jesse Harding Pomeroy spends the next, Jack, 41 years in solitary confinement. Jeez, man. There was only one other prisoner in U.S. history to spend longer time in solitary confinement, and that was 42 years. He's the second longest anybody has ever spent completely alone. Wow. While in solitary confinement, Jesse learned how to read in foreign languages. He couldn't speak them, though, despite what is reported in other sources, other podcasts. Shots fired. (laughs) He wrote poetry. Obviously, he couldn't speak them because he had nobody to bounce them off of. (laughs) Yeah. Right. He wrote a lot of poetry. He studied law, and uh, he tried to get his conviction overturned or get a pardon. On November 11th, 1887, so uh, a little over 10 years after he's he's been in solitary confinement for a little over 10 years at this point. Yeah. He, uh, he accidentally blows himself up and nearly ruins his one good eye. It's important to point out that during his time in prison, he tried to escape over the next couple of decades. He tries to escape over a dozen times. Yeah. None of them are successful. In this one attempt on November 11th, 1887, he uh, burrows through the wall just a little bit. Uh, he noticed through his little window that there was a gas pipe on the outside of the wall. Yeah. So he takes a little shard of metal that he got off his bucket, his water bucket, and spins painstakingly. It ain't like this guy's got a lot to do. Yeah. Right. He's got the time. <laughs> painstakingly digging through the mortar and brick with this one little shard of metal. It took him months to get through to the other side of the wall. And then he he punctures a hole in this gas line and makes a funnel a little pop funnel out of toilet paper and soap, funnels it into the openings of the brick wall there. So like the cells, Mm -hmm. right? You know how bricks have cells in between them? Yeah. And then he lights it. And his plan was to blow a hole in the wall and then run off and escape. But what he ended up doing was almost killing himself. The the explosion (laughs) blew him across the cell like a fucking Looney Tune and his back (laughs) hit the wall and he crumpled into a heap and he almost blinded his one good eye. He was unconscious for three hours. Oh my god! <laughs> well, nice try, though. You know, it's not really Shawshank Redemption, and they will never do a movie on it because you know you gotta be cheering for the guy doing that painstaking labor to get himself out of there. But kind of a kind of a good idea. I mean, he didn't really have anything else to go on. So when he yeah. when he chinked through that and he, he created the spark and he it blew it, it probably came out like a just like a flame that blew yeah. him back, right? It, absolutely. Yeah, it did destroy the wall, by the way. If he had been conscious, he probably could have got away. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Two months later, after this incident with the wall blowing up, his father on January 27th, 1898, uh, Thomas Pomeroy, Jesse's dad, dies at 62 years old. And man, I I dug for a day trying to figure out what his cause of death was because 62 is pretty young. 
Yeah. I uh, never could find out. Probably uh, lung cancer from a lot of coal. Yeah. Sucking it in. So, yeah, black lung. <laughs> Ain't that what they called it? I don't know. I need a cigarette, what, what though. Coal miners got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's important to point out <laughs> over this next little bit here, and this episode's almost over for those of you. Thank you for staying with us for this long one. This is a this was a long one. But is, is this a long one by TCK standards? They usually run between an hour and a half to, to three hours. Oh. And we're at three hours and fifteen minutes right now. So yes. Wow, yeah. man. Yeah, I can't feel my right arm. I think I'm having a heart attack. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised it took this long. <laughs> I smoked two packs of cigarettes. Between all your vices, all the <laughs> fucking drugs you did, and not sleeping. <laughs> uh, good night, everybody. Uh, let's fast forward a little bit, and then we'll come back to this. Let's Quentin Tarantino this. Uh, mm-hmm. By the time Jesse Pomeroy dies, uh, one thing, no matter how horrible he was, it was. He absolutely was. It's not arguable. Right. It is uh, kind of impressive that they never broke his spirit. Ever. Even after all that time in solitary, solitary confinement, he was like a, a lemming when it came to trying to break out. Trying to break out. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how lemmings just, like, no matter how many times you slap their hand, they just go right back to digging at the wall sure. or the ground. I don't know That's that. That's the way Jesse Pomeroy was. Yeah. They would be like, stop. Stop digging at the walls. <laughs> and the second the gate shut, just right back to digging. No matter how many times they caught him, it was all he cared about was trying to get out. Wow. So, uh, like I said, over the next couple of decades, he does try to tries to escape over a dozen times. On the late night of December 30th, 1920, 1912, so he's been in solitary confinement at this point for about 30 years. Yeah. Um, another escape is foiled when he uses a homemade file and painstakingly cuts the bottom three bars of his iron gate door off. Wow. Uh, and this is December 30th. So right after Christmas, it's yeah. late night. It's like one in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. Fortunately for everybody in this area, uh, there was a, there was a guard on duty and that guard's name was Buster the cat. <laughs> uh, for real? <laughs> yes. There was a cat that sat in a chair at the end of the hallway there. There's not a guard in this room in this big warehouse. It's two in the morning and Jesse crawls out from underneath this gate that he's just painstakingly spent time cutting the bars off of. Buster sends the alarm by running and hissing and screaming and a guard comes running oh. and finds Jesse hunkered against a chair in the wall trying to hide in the shadows where he has him at gunpoint. Jeez. And, and uh, on the front page of that paper the next morning on December 31st, 1912, there's a big picture of Buster the Cat on a chair looking heroic with his chest puffed out. Buster the Cat foils Jesse Pomeroy's escape plan. <laughs> I was surprised his head wasn't twisted off. <laughs> but, you know, Jesse, you, it's amazing that you didn't get a hold of that cat. Uh, on January 10th, 1915, Jesse is now 55 years old. He's an old man. Now. I mean, he's coming, looking old, old man in the, in the, in the face. Uh, his mother, Ruth Ann Pomeroy, who had supported him until the day she died, and that day is today, January 10th, 1915. His mom dies in her sleep at 74 years old, diphtheria, yeah, uh, which we now uh, thankfully vaccinate against. That's something that has died off in the United States. I got two of those vaccinations. 
for diphtheria? <laughs> I said earlier, I got diphtheria. Yeah, I got two of those. No, no, I just got the polio twice. That's why I walk around with these uh, steel bars around my legs. Yeah, that, I was wondering why, because when we met when, when we met in Wisconsin, you never explained why you have one shoe that's got the longer sole. Well, it was nice of you not to ask. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to ask. You got one shoe that's got like a four-inch sole and the other that's got a normal sole. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that happened. I went to the doctor and they were like, have, what, uh, what have you gotten vaccinated for? And I said, nothing. They're like, nothing? I'm like, yeah, like nothing. And it turned out like I've been taken to get those shots, but I just didn't communicate with anybody. And I was like, no, I've never been vaccinated for anything. So like, really? So they gave me all the vaccinations I should have got as a baby. But I already had them. They just stacked them up. <laughs> I mean, I guess with all of, all the shit that you do to your body, it doesn't matter. That's the least of your worries. It is. Yeah, yeah. they say I'm fine. <laughs> January twenty fifth, nineteen seventeen. Two years after his mother dies at fifty seven years old, Jesse Pomeroy is finally released from solitary confinement after forty one years and is allowed in general population. And it is here, finally, that he swears his, his attempts at escape are over with. He's just too old for it now. Um, and, and Jesse, pretty quickly, uh, amongst the other inmates, got tagged with the nickname of Grandpa. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody called him Grandpa. Uh, he had been there longer than any other inmate. And uh, everybody noted that he was a very egotistical old man. He always introduced himself to new inmates. The first thing he would do was come up and go, I'm Jesse Pomeroy. And he loved seeing their reactions. He yeah. loved it. Got him so hard. I bet. Seeing him like know who he was. Yeah. He yeah. loved it. He shook their hands with his dick. No doubt. Yeah. Charles, Jesse's brother, the good one of the family. He dies in 1919 at the age of 62 in California. Yeah. He ended up running off trying to get away from that Pomeroy name in Boston to the other side of the United States where he opened up a motel. And uh, eventually died at 62 years old and not. Look at your research. What are you doing? This is ridiculous research. <laughs> this brother, you found out that he owned a motel? Uh, he also had a daughter named Ethel Annie. <laughs> Pomeroy. That's true. What the hell, man? <laughs> I didn't write that down. I just remembered that. You want to dig my research? I'll go fucking deeper. Let's go. By the way, they have surviving family members on Charles' side of the family that live today. In California. <laughs> the fuck, man? <laughs> Jesse Pomeroy, he finally dies, still in prison, never got out. On September 29th, 1932, at 72, 72 years old, of coronary heart disease, in his cell there at the Bridgewater Prison Farm. He was transferred to Bridgewater as he got older, when he was no longer a threat. He had been in prison for 56 years, 41 years of which had been spent in solitary confinement. Um, his remains, at his request, were cremated, and then he was buried beside his mother at North Weymouth Cemetery. All of his worldly possessions and money were left to an altar boy named William Finn, who worked there at the prison chapel, and those totaled about $1,000 or $21,000 today. Oh, what a sweet guy. That is the case. With that, Jack, <clears throat> of Jesse Harding Pomeroy, the boy fiend. And honestly, man... I could have done a whole nother episode on his time in prison. There was God knows enough content to do it. I was kind of sad, actually, just to keep this under four hours. I wanted to make the time while he was in prison brief, but 
all, all the various escape attempts. Yeah. And uh, and his shenanigans. He was so arrogant and so cocky and so egotistical that, um, man, what a character. What uh, a character. And now I understand why the operator has a toilet built into his seat. I'm sorry. Don't I'm be sorry. sorry. It's just wow, man. Wow. Great job. Hey, are you gonna are you gonna uh finish this thing off with uh imitating other podcasters again? I think we might have a little treat here at the end, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by I think I mean I know for a fact. <laughs> well, thanks for having me and uh let's play that for everybody. Well, first before we do oh, that, fuck, I want to stop my source. Oh, Jesus. Okay, go ahead. So it's about 20 million old newspapers. <laughs> I mean, that. I, I probably used about 400 old newspapers. Oh, yeah. Um, as well as the book by Harold Schechter called Fiend. Oh, Harold Schechter's a fantastic writer. Yes, he is. One, one of the good ones for sure, man. Hey, he did one on Gein, and uh, that's the only one I can remember. There was someone else, too, but yeah. Yeah, man. Fiend. Well, I won't read it now that I've gone through this. Still worth a read. Yeah, Still a good book. Great book. And on that, we will uh we will leave we will leave you all you're tired of hearing us and let you enjoy one little bit. A little bit here. Just a little a little funny. Bit. I'm making fun of Aaron Mankey from War. <laughs> I don't know you if that makes, takes that. the funny away from it. If you say it, does it take the funny away from the parody? Okay, just... let's let's hear the bit where we're making fun of Aaron Mankey <laughs> from the podcast Lore. Are you trying to get sued? This episode of TCK was written and produced by me, Kent Chungus, with research by me, Kent Chungus, and music by some guy from the internet. TCK isn't much more than just a podcast. There's no book series available in bookstores or online, and we don't have a television show on Amazon Prime Video, so you can't check them out if you want more TCK in your life. I also make and executive produce a whole bunch of other podcasts, all of which I think you'd enjoy. The production company I work for, 1159 Media, specializes in shows that sit at the intersection of the dark and historical. You can learn more about all of these shows and everything else going on at one central place, 1159media.com. And you can also follow this show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for True Crime Kent, all separate words, then click that follow button. And when you do, say hi. I like it when people say hi. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>